at another exciting episode of Skeptics and Seekers. I'm your host, David the Skeptic, and I'm joined by two, mark that two, champions in the arena. We have on my left hand, Dale Glover, and on my right, Val, the false god. Why would you want to call yourself that? Anyway, um, we have these two. And, uh, wow, I've been looking forward to this. Uh, I um, I have this as one of my uh, moderating duties for the podcast extravaganza that we are going through. And mostly the reason I wanted this one as um, moderating duties is just to be ringside with Dale and Val. <laughs> Eat your hearts out, kid. kids. Um, so... This is a continuation of the moral debate that Marvin and I started a couple of weeks ago. And we knew going in that we would never be able to really cover this topic. There would be no way, even if we went for five hours, that we'd be able to cover this topic. And so I began to uh, cook, cook up a scheme so that we could actually cover this topic or at least address it. And the way we're doing that is we're doing... Five more podcasts on uh, morality. So count uh, myself and Dale, our first one, as one. And on that same page, you will see these uh, other five podcasts show up. Today, we have Dale and Val discussing moral ontology. I think this is the Christian's favorite part of uh, the moral argument. Uh, Next week. We have David Robinson with yours truly discussing moral epistemology. That is my uh, favorite uh, aspect of the moral argument. And then week the the next uh, episode, by the way, that uh, this one will come out today as you're hearing it. Uh, the next one with myself and um, Robinson uh, Russell, excuse me, David Russell, will be coming out um, Saturday, uh, I believe Sunday. Uh, we will have Teddy and Darren Lute, uh, and they will be discussing the practical aspects of that. And so we will have the philosophical, the grounding of morality, uh, how we know uh, what is and isn't moral, and then we'll have them put that to the test uh, as they discuss the morality of homosexuality. Understand that this show is not really so much about homosexuality. That's more of a heuristic to see how we put the concepts together. Uh, So that's going to be fun. The fourth show, which I think will be the following day, Monday the 24th, uh, that will be Darren Lute pulling double duty with Daniel the Preacher, uh, who uh, showed up also and asked an atheist anything uh, recently. I'm not sure if that show is out or not, but it should be by the time uh, you hear him. So that will be fun. And they will be discussing uh, whether uh, morality needs to be grounded uh, in a God or not? Can we have completely natural explanations uh, for morality? Uh, so they'll be just discussing that. And then week, uh, the next one will probably be the following weekend. We'll give you a chance to digest all of that. Marvin will come back uh, for the finale uh, and he will be with Brian with a Y uh, to uh, wrap everything up. And I will show up as a moderator for that one. And who knows what other guests might stop by for the finale. It's going to be great. And so without any further ado, uh, let's step into what I what I uh, consider in my own mind, episode two of the moral 
the uh, moral discussion uh, started with uh, myself and Marvin now Dale and introducing Val with his opening arguments. How are you doing, uh, Dale? Nice to meet you uh, over uh, this uh, podcast. And thanks a lot, David. Nice to nice to meet you as well there, Val. Okay. Um, and so to kind of set the stage, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about what I see uh, are the, the sort of the problems inherent in talking about morality, especially uh, what we're going to be discussing today. And it's a, it's a little bit of lowering of expectations in a way, too. So it's some of it is going to be kind of obvious and some of it a little bit of a reiteration of what I started with on the podcast where I appeared uh, talking about hell. But I'll get to the general uh, cautions I have about discussing morality. And so, like, on the last show that I was on uh, with other atheists discussing hell, we argued like typical atheists and we're, you know, confidently declaring why hell is immoral and unjust. And, you know, we see this level of confident moral appraisals all the time between theists and atheists, and particularly when discussing the claims of holy texts and their God's actions and their character and stuff. And in fact, um, we all sort of in normal normal life feel we can make quite confident appraisals of certain people for their actions being good or bad. So in those normal everyday realms, we tend to sort of speak with a pretty high degree of moral confidence. Uh, But this show is different. Uh, Even though the subject is morality, I'll be significantly more reserved in the confidence I have and in the arguments here or or either from me or from the other side. Pardon my voice. So why is this? I'd like to make the point, the point with uh, an analogy. And it's an analogy that sort of reiterates the point I started with in the Hell Discussion Show, but it points also to the problems discussing moral theories. So let's take the analogy to fire. We all share a common agreement on the properties of fire insofar as we encounter it and the reason and the way we reason about it in our daily lives, basically on the human scale at which we encounter fire. So, so it's a source of heat. We know how it generally acts, its properties and characteristics in a wide variety of situations. You know, it's a source of a heat that's great, a great tool when under control on our stoves, uh, but it's a great threat to us when uncontrolled, burning through our living room, etc. So, you know, on this everyday understanding that we all tend to share, if someone like Fred is stuck in a forest and he's in the cold, it'd be a good idea for Fred to produce a bonfire of some sort. Uh, as that will keep them warm and help them survive. So that's a reasonable use of fire. But if there's a heat wave and Fred is trying to cool off, then building a bonfire and throwing himself in is, we'd all recognize, just irrational, given the heating properties of fire. And that actually uh, that actually reminds me of one of my favorite old articles from The Onion, the satirical news magazine, the one with the headline that uh, says, uh, NASA baffled by failure of straw shuttle. So there's like some quotes from it, you know, NASA officials watched in horror Monday as a 68 billion straw uh, space shuttle Explorer 2 burst into flames just after liftoff from Cape Canaveral. Quote, the straw ship was dry, light, and well bailed enough to break the Earth's orbit, but inexplicably burst into flames when ignited with 3,000 gallons of rocket fuel, said NASA's uh, chief engineer, George Tashikama. 
And all the pre-fueling tests, uh, the straw, uh, the, the straw shuttle uh, procedure went perfectly. But as soon as we ignited it with fuel, it exploded. Why? So the reason everybody gets the joke of that article, of course, is that we all share an acquaintance with the properties of fire. And we recognize how inconsistently the engineers were reasoning in building a shuttle based out of highly flammable straw and igniting it with fire. So our acquaintance with everyday morality is like our acquaintance with fire in that respect. Most of us share some common understanding of the properties of what makes someone good or bad, or their actions good or bad. So as I pointed out on the previous podcast, no one walks out of the movie Star Wars confused about the fact that Darth Vader and the Empire, who destroyed entire planets of people for their own selfish aims, were the bad guys. Or that Luke Skywalker and his friends, who risked their own well-being, the well-being of others, were the good guys. If we, another example might be, if we as parents were deciding on which school to send our children to, and we're trying to figure out which would be a good school with a good principal, we generally share agreement uh, on how we devaluate schools and their principals. So if there's a school with a principal who's honest, fair, compassionate, wise, and whose policies preserve the well-being of our children, and which tended to produce well-educated, well-adjusted pupils, well, that's, that would generally be rated a good principal or a good school. But if, you know, Fred says, I know of a school with a good principal. In this school, the principal has arranged that the water system often stops working. Deadly diseases are sometimes released into the classrooms. Venomous snakes are placed in the playground. Child abusers are hired as teachers. And the school is constructed so that parts of it occasionally collapse on students and faculty. Now that is a good principle of running a good school. So we all recognize that Susan sounds insane here. We'd have no idea what she even means by good anymore. That's not how uh, good and the appraisal of people usually work. So again, we have a common grasp of good and bad and of the good properties like benevolence, love, justice, et cetera, similar to how we share an understanding of the properties of fire. So now on this level, the deeper questions about the deeper characteristics, the ontology of fire, the reality of whatever is composed of, the ontological basis on which it arose or came to exist, it's neither here nor there. Fire could have arisen from natural physics, or it could have been brought into existence by aliens, or by pixies, or beings from another dimension, or fire could have been the creation of a god. But whatever its provenance and ontology, it's still the case that fire has the properties it does, that we recognize and use every day. And from those properties, we can evaluate whether someone is reasoning properly and consistently about how to use or predict the activity of fire. Fire still burns your fingers, it cooks your food, or burns down your house and forests if uh, it gets out of control. It's the same with our everyday understandings of the properties of what makes good and bad people in actions. We don't need a specialist understanding an ontological theory for how it exists in order to reason about good and bad, given the properties we do understand, or at least apply consistently in our daily lives. So, fire exists is one of the entities in our ontology, um, on, uh, and but we can keep asking questions about the nature of fire, sort of the way in that old Louis, Louis C.K. bit, he has his kid endlessly asking him questions why that lead to absurdity. So what's fire comprised of? Well, it's a chemical reaction, uh, so chemicals are part of the ontology, that is, uh, what exists. Uh, what is the nature of the chemicals? What are they comprised of? Well, they can be broken down to the entities described in physics, atoms, electrons, etc. 
operating on the laws described by your physics. Okay, so what are the nature of those physics? And on and on and down you go through the rabbit hole. And this is where you leave the everyday experience of the lay men and lay women into the realm of experts. This is much like, I guess, philosopher Willard, uh, well, sorry, Wilfred Sutter's distinction between the manifest image versus the scientific image. So uh, we have in the manifest image to uh, as human beings, we have the world of trees and flowers and people and cars and bugs as they seem to manifest themselves to our human perception. And then we have the scientific image of those things, which is populated with molecules, atoms, electrons, gravity, quarks, and maybe other strange entities like strings and dark energy. And in the same way, you can start asking those chains of questions about the nature of morality. And you leave the strata of everyday acquaintance, and you go down the rabbit hole of uh, epistemological and ontological questions that are really hard to answer and which I'm hardly qualified to answer. And the problem is things get really weird in the domain of experts. Once you go down the rabbit hole far enough, you find that some human intuitions become challenged and pushed around. The same physical theories that give you the nature of fire also entail entities and propositions that seem to thwart some of our in intuitions. So like you learn in physics, things like um, objects of uh, different weight uh, actually fall to Earth at the same rate of speed, you know, uh, when you account for air friction, et cetera. So for instance, in a vacuum, it doesn't fit our intuitions that a feather would fall at the same rate as a bowling ball in a vacuum, but it happens. Or deeper down, you go into the, all the counterintuitive stuff like, uh, you know, the reference frame invariance of the speed of light, uh, the limits on how fast anything can travel. Like, why couldn't something accelerate indefinitely? What would stop it? You know, well, you find out that intuition is wrong. Or all the counterintuitive phenomena in quantum mechanics or the propositions of almost endless versions of yourself existing in multiple universes. And yet, so it pushes around our intuitions and thwarts some of them. But at the same time, the very reason we can consider many of the counterintuitive suggestions in physics tends to be on the basis of holding on to other intuitions that keep our world coherent. So, for instance, if physicists are hanging, on, hanging their hats on the intuitions inherent in their math, for instance. They're not going to let those go. Um, so when drilling down the nature of reality, there seems to be this careful dance in trying to preserve certain intuitions while carefully dispensing with others that we are willing to let go. And this is what you tend to find, I think, in philosophy in general and philosophy of uh, morality in specific. Philosophers appeal to intuition all the time saying, for instance, that when you can derive conclusions from an argument that seem weird or strange on our intuitions, that's at least some reason to be skeptical uh, of the claim or to reject the theory. And there's, of course, some controversy about the role of intuitions in evaluating theories. Some philosophers will argue against appeal to intuitions, but you just, you just see plenty of it in philosophy and especially moral philosophy. And so there you have this careful dance in which moral, uh, moral theory is supposed to both describe our moral intuitions and account for those moral intuitions at the same time. We often show that a theory fails because its logic results, not simply in contradictions, but in how it leads to conclusions that violate some moral beliefs we hold that we're just not willing to overturn. And, uh, and so, you know, it's like in physics, if you go down the rabbit hole, you're going to screw around with your intuition. So, if you take some moral theories, if you take like an act utilitarian, he may find uh, that a number of his moral intuitions are grounded in this theory, but he may come to certain intuitions, intuitions say about justice or innocence and other intuitions that they're, they're being undermined. 
So uh, she may find that her theory proposes that charging an innocent person with a crime results in more happiness or well-being overall, and that fulfills the act's utilitarian theory, um, or that she has to abandon the intuition that her child's life is any more valuable than the lives of her neighbor's three children. Those are tough intuitions to give up, but she may have to give up those intuitions to keep the rest of her theory. Or if you get a rule or a duty-based uh, deontologist who uh, may find certain moral intuitions have to be given up, for instance, uh, keeping his duty of never seeking to deceive other rational beings, you've got a classic problem if the deontologists were hiding an innocent Jewish person from the Nazis, and the Nazis uh, asked at the door if he knows where the Jewish person is, most people have the moral intuition that lying would be the right thing to do to save the Jewish person. But the deontologist may have to give up on that intuition to follow his duty not to lie. Now, of course, deontologists and everybody else will have their rebuttals to this, but these are general, I'm just getting at general channels here. Uh, the moral subject, subjectivist who thinks that morality is decided by the individual, or the moral constructivist who thinks that morality is constructed by agreement within societies, they might have to give up moral intuitions that some other society is truly objectively wrong and enslaving or torturing people. And you don't avoid this in theism either. It's got challenges. Uh, Christians, for instance, even when they accept their biblical God as the foundation of morality, they often find that his actions are counterintuitive to some of their intuitions. Many, for example, will have a hard time with the concept of hell or simply in either experiencing just personal tragedy or observing the tragedy for others in the world, their intuitions about what a good person who had the power to ameliorate that tragedy would have done are thwarted. And they wonder, where is God in these cases? And they often have to stuff away the insult to their moral intuition and go on faith that God has good reasons that they don't know yet for what he causes or allows. And even if you're a natural theologian who reason from the nature of the world to, to the existence of a God, insofar as God is good, he still faces the type of insults to his moral intuitions uh, given the nature of suffering and injustice in the world. So the point is moral theories are really tough. Uh, if there was an easy answer, we'd have it by now. And I get kind of suspicious of people who feel they may have the answer or an easy answer or who uh, are full of confidence in their particular moral theory. And it seems to me that any moral theory will be doing the stance of trying to both account for and preserve certain goods and intuitions we already, already acknowledge while possibly subverting other intuitions. Um, that said, I'm finding certain claims and theories more compelling than others, but we can get into that and uh, I'll just leave it at that. Sorry for the length. Uh, no problem. Thank you for that uh, opening statement. Dale, uh, your opening statement. Okay, uh, yeah, so first of all, I just want to say thanks again uh, to Val. Uh, that was a great opening speech, and uh, I think I actually agree with a lot of you said, what you said there, but I do have a couple questions for you when we get to the rebuttal stage. But in terms of my own opening uh, statement, so when David pitched the topic of moral ontology, um, the first thing that pops into my, my head as to what that subject entails is, okay, well, what is the nature of morality of moral truths themselves and how do we identify or distinguish moral truths uh, which can include moral principles moral duties uh, values that kind of thing um, from non-moral ones and on that front I, I sort of look at it in terms of there's there's four criteria that uh, can help us now 
um, whether these are, are com a complete package, you know, they're necessary and sufficient criteria in and of themselves, or if I'm missing one. Uh, again, I'm, I'm a particularist, so I, I think that we can recognize clear cases of something, even if we don't have a, a necessary and sufficient checklist. But I, I do submit these four criteria as ways that I think we can uh, distinguish certain moral truths from non-moral truths. So the first one is that um, typically moral truths and or principles or rules, that they're seen as being supremely authoritative or they're an overriding guide for conduct, uh, attitudes, motives, or thoughts. Um, so some philosophers will say, well, this is, they have the highest degree of incumbency. Um, I, I agree with saying it this way. Um, there's some controversy with saying it has the highest degree of incumbency that Val sort of hinted at, um, you know, in terms of, okay, well, are all moral principles equally weighty or are there times when they conflict? And there are complications there that I'm sure we'll, we'll discuss uh, in time when, when me and Val go back and forth there. The second criterion is that they provide, moral truths provide a prescriptive imperative, um, otherwise sometimes, you know, known as a categorical imperative, uh, something that we ought to do. It's not just a mere descript description, um, you know, this is sort of related to the ought is problem. Um, the third criterion is that they are, moral truths are universalizable. So they apply equally to all morally relevant uh, similar situations. Um, regardless of, of time, place, or person. So um, as long as the morally relevant circumstances are the same, you've got to be consistent there. So this is a, essentially a way of saying that moral truths don't have exceptions. Um, and the fourth criterion that I've sort of modified here, this is sort of my own, but I, I just say that moral truths typically have to involve or pertain to at least one or more moral agents. And uh, just as a suggestion, I, I think that they usually refer to proper moral agent flourishing and well-being uh, and dignity, stuff like that. So what I called uh, personism uh, with David Smalley when he was on our show. So, so that's sort of how I think we can go about distinguishing moral truths from non-moral truths. And this relates to David's question. So, okay, the second premise of the moral argument that objective moral truths are are, uh, are exist or something like that well okay what what do christians typically mean and corresponding to those four criteria i think there are three ways that christians typically will answer what we mean by when we say we're a moral absolutist or an objectivist um kind of thing so the first one is the common one that, that we hear all the time. So, you know, they're objectively and unchangingly true, irrespective of uh, an individual subject's beliefs, um, desires, whatever. It's, it's independent of the beliefs in that of individuals and or cultures. Um, so that's, you know, that's the number one thing. And there, there are five different things under that, that that people can give to describe that. So, Basically, you know, moral propositions have truth values. They make no reference um, and they don't derive from the subjective beliefs of individuals or cultures uh, or species, because I know David's answer to that. Um, they are there are objectively good or bad arguments for the truth of those moral propositions that are independent of subjective beliefs and 
uh, desires and that sort of thing of the individual or culture. Um, another example, when two or two moral statements conflict, only one of those uh, statements and or neither of those statements can be right. They can't both be correct. Um, so, so yeah, the the second way that uh, Christ, what Christians mean when they speak about moral absolutes or uh, moral objective statements and that sort of things is kind of corresponding to what I said before. They are exceptionalists. They are universalizable. Um, so this is a way that we ident. This is what Christians mean when they say moral absolutes are. Uh, sorry, morals are absolute or objective. And the final way is. Uh, the way that I said uh, in my second point that they have the highest degree of incumbency or they're supremely authoritative. So, so this is kind of saying there are no exemption exemptions from the moral truth or moral principle or whatever. Now, this is controversial. So, so Immanuel Kant, he believed in what was called unqualified absolutism, where, you know, you have a moral prin principle of life versus principle of truth. Um, and they're equally weighty, so you can't just, uh, you can't lie to save a life, for example. And most of us see that that's, that's wrong. I mean, it, it's obviously uh, what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to lie and, and save that life from that Jewish life from the Nazi or that sort of thing. So just to qualify, when I say it, first of all, when I say it has high, moral truths have the highest degree of incumbency, um, I'm talking about with respect to non-moral uh, propositions and that sort of thing only. They're, they are higher than non-moral propositions. Um, that's not necessarily to say they, they all have the highest degree of incumbency with respect to other moral truths, because sometimes in the moral hierarchy, moral principles will conflict and you have to choose the, the lesser of two evils, uh, which is a conflicting absolutism, or the greater of two goods, um, which is known as uh, graded absolutism. Um, and, and when we do this, we're saying that the, the principle still applies. It's not an exception, right? Because moral principles are exceptionalists or universalizable, but there can be exemptions from that principle where the principle still makes itself felt, but you have no choice but to exempt it temporarily. So, um, yeah, those are the three things that I think uh, Christians have to answer David's question when they're talking about well, what what do you mean by a moral absolute or objective morals? Um, so, yeah, I think the next thing to say quickly is, OK, well, how, how can one argue that there are these objective moral truths or ab moral absolutes or, as I prefer to say, necessary moral truths? So the first one is uh, Val kind of covered this, and it's through moral intuitions, properly basic beliefs. This is what I've presented on the show multiple times, and it, I think it's uh, quite strong that these objective moral principles do in fact exist. And um, it would take something very strong to, to counter that or to get me to not believe that morals are objective or necessary truths um, based on my moral intuitions alone. The second way you can argue for moral absolutes is by proving that they are logically entailed through the, of the truth of a worldview. So let's pretend you can prove Christianity is true or, or uh, God exists and has the property of, of existing a say or, you know, the God's a say, he's the creator of everything that exists or something. Well, then one could perhaps argue that moral absolutes follow from the truth of that worldview or, or that proposition. 
So that it's in a derivative way. And then the final way is by falsifying ethical relativism um, or subjectivism and saying, well, look, there are only these two exhaustive options, either it's objective or it's subjective. There isn't a third option. And I can falsify that subjectivism or relative ethical relativism is true. Uh, therefore, by definition, that means moral objectivism is true. So those are the three strategies one can give to try and argue that moral truths are in fact objective. Um, now I had stuff about normative ethical theory. Um, so Val's not a utilitarian, so I'm actually gonna skip over all of that. Um, and I'll just describe my my view quickly. So I, I'm a deontologist. Um, so I, I believe obviously that um, there are moral rules and it's, it's intrinsically good in and of itself um, to follow these moral rules um, in the form of principles and moral duties. Um, but I'm also a virtue ethicist. So this, um, there was actually a quote that I, okay, so yeah, there's a, a famous quote in ethics where it says, look, virtues without rules are blind. They have no guidance. Um, but moral rules without virtues are motivationally impotent. So I, I think that both are true and in a complementary way, right? So we we have these moral rules that guide our actions and we're motivated to follow these uh, given rules because they develop characters that are fit for our salvation. I, I'm uh, sort of a classical essentialist there where I think God designed us to... Uh, experience this this state of deep well-being or, or bliss and by following moral rules we're able to obtain this uh, beneficial consequence um, so yeah the, the thing I want to get through here is that there are two fundamental um, perspectives on normative ethical theory the first is deontological so rule-based take the errors of the rules follow it um, and then there's also the teleological approaches, which covers things like ethical egoism, utilitarianism, or virtue ethics. And I think that both are needed. You need a deontological foundation and a teleological foundation that complement each other um, in a circular way, not a viciously circular way. And, and that's what forms the, the ultimate foundation of our um, morals. And my final thing to say, sorry, I'm, I'm going on way too long, but um, so, so yes, I am a theist. So I ground these moral rules and, and virtues in the nature of God. Um, and I'm sure we'll, we'll get into that uh, later on. So yeah, I'll, I'll turn it back to you, David, there. Okay, thank you uh, for that statement. And um, I'm going to have you, Dale, uh, Go ahead and uh, respond to um, Val's opening statement. Uh, if there are some particular rebuttals that you have, notes that you've taken, now is a good time to express that. And then when you are done, just hand the mic over to Val, and he can do the same for rebuttaling your open opening statement. After that, we will uh, get into some fisticuffs. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, so yeah, no, no. Um outright rebuttals, but just sort of probing questions for you, Val. So I wrote down two fundamental points. Um, so the first is, okay, so yes, we, we shouldn't be confident. Um, I, I agree with 
with that. Like, you know, there should be some epistemic humility that this is a difficult morality or ethics is a difficult field of study. There, there are lots of positions, even, uh, you know, you, you mentioned just within utilitarianism, there are uh, act utilitarians or rule utilitarians, um, and there are differences within those. There, there are hedonistic utilitarians, uh, pluralistic utilitarians. So there are there are a whole host of, of positions. So I do think humility is a good thing there. But one thing that I'd like to question you on is with your example of the fire. Um, okay, so I agree with you that Look, I mean, when I was five years old, I, I knew it was wrong to steal, and I, I had no clue about the ontolo ontological grounding or nature of moral truths or anything like that. It, so, so they're not necessary, but I, I wouldn't say that they're irrelevant. Um, and I think that's what you were saying, because sure, would, would you, well, let me ask you, would you agree that understanding the ontological nature of morality and the, the grounding or foundation is uh, important and potentially it could have an impact on how we live our moral lives so maybe i know certain properties about the fire like it burns me or something like that so don't touch it but perhaps if i learn about the ontological nature of that that i'm just living in the matrix and it's not really an ontological fire it's just a computer generated program and my mind can then manipulate the things maybe i can touch the fire and i won't get burned so it, potentially the, the ontological questions could be relevant um, for, yeah. for how we understand the properties. What do you make of that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. No, so I wasn't making the case that uh, the ontology <clears throat> is irrelevant at all, um, only that it isn't necessary uh, for, uh, for just evaluating the consistent application of reasoning to the properties that you do agree on if you see what i mean so so long as uh, you and i so long as it's it's a shared human experience that we agree on that fire is going to burn my finger when i put my finger in there um and uh, and, and we don't want pain we're going to agree that uh, that it's a bad idea to turn on the stove and put your finger in there that kind of thing so it's not that the uh, any ontological account it is irrelevant. It is uh, just not necessary in the case of uh, agreeing upon uh, already agreed upon characteristics that we can use to uh, predict the world as it was. And uh, of course, uh, it, it totally makes sense that uh, an ontology, uh, further understanding of, of what something is and how it arises uh, can uh, can help you understand the world that, you know, our, our macro level that we experience it. So, I mean, um, we could talk, uh, we could, you know, for instance, hard drives, uh, hard drives back from the, the early 80s or whatever before, the original hard drives. Um, we would, uh, if we understand that those are based on the type of physics that drill down into the uh, phenomena of uh, quantum particles, et cetera, and you start to learn about uh, also also at the, at the state at the level of the atoms and electrons and et cetera. You later learn more about the nature of hard drives and what you can do to improve them. So now our hard drives um, actually work on things like electron spin that we understand from the deeper physics and which uh, make them you know uh, work much better and have more capacity and uh, that kind of stuff. So no no an ontology can definitely be useful and can also 
guide how you think about um, the thing on the regular layman's level. Uh, um, I'm just saying, as I said, I was only making the case for consistency. Gotcha. Not yeah. relevant. Gotcha. Yeah. Yep. Oh, all right. Cool. Yeah. Okay. I, and I agree with, I agree with your point in that case there. Um, one thing and, I would I should just say that if, if fire came from God, there may be some caveats involved with God and fire that make us uh, wary of how we use fire. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yep. Yeah. True enough. Yeah. And another thing that I thought it, it could also moral ontology could be. Uh, or an ontological uh, foundation could be important for people that don't agree. So if, if we don't have that common agreement that fire burns or something, I, who knows who who would do that? But pretend there is some someone. Potentially, it, it could be useful in in that uh, if you explain what the fire is ontologically, how it interacts with with our bodies or something like that. That may convince them. Like. Um, yeah. Um, all right. Um, and your second argument that I got was about, so this contrast between, so we have knowledge through moral intuitions or, or properly basic beliefs, as I like to call them, versus arguments. And I, I think you're entirely right that um, sometimes... Can I just in there? I, I'm sorry. Can I just step in? Um, uh, I would I would be, I'd be very cautious about calling intuitions knowledge. Uh, I... Think, um, I know some some philosophers would call them a type of knowledge, uh, even ones that they, they're not um, they're like analytical knowledge or, or knowledge not necessarily based on experience and that kind of stuff. But um, uh, I sort of think of it more as say s strongly held uh, mental attitudes or beliefs that may or may not have been built up from evidence, but but which are sort of hard to shake. They're they're like a they're like prima facie versions of what seems to be right to us. So I don't know that I, I, I would be, I'd be careful about uh, just instantly qualifying them as knowledge as it seems like you would want to do. Um, well, well, certainly uh, I would qualify. There, there are certain intuitional beliefs uh, that are properly basic versus improperly basic and that sort of thing. So that I could qualify um, what I'm saying is I, I was just sort of focusing on the the ones that would count as a warranted true belief as a you know in the in the way in a properly basic way or something like that. Um, but obviously, yeah, we we do have intuitions that can be false, and and that's why. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah, and, and that's why I, I agree with your point about you know arguments from derivative knowledge can potentially overwhelm. Um, intuitional knowledge I'll, I'll say it that way to contrast yeah. it with intuitions or uh, uh our intuitions but I, I was just wondering would you do you ever do you see it as sort of a one-way street or can our our into can our intuitions in in a wider sense ever amount to to knowledge in a way that can overwhelm an argument um in terms of the degrees of, of knowledge that it or warrant that it provides in your opinion uh, so this is um yeah, I, this is just like, this is the tough question that I was trying to sort of get at. It feels sort of hard to escape. Um, uh, it feels hard to escape that your theory about almost anything will want to preserve some intuitions, even uh, if it means abandoning certain other ones. 
And at the same time, I got I have to admit that I don't like that, um, and that I I I I feel some affinity with the philosophers who argue against any appeal to intuitions, and that knowledge should be essentially derivative. Um, even if you have to make some certain assumptions, but even those assumptions or axioms can be justified with reference to other ones, et cetera. So I guess what I'm, what I'm saying is, is I am really wary of uh, signing on to the idea that our intuitions ultimately will prevail over uh, strong sort of logic, piecing together something coherent from our, uh, from our experience. I hope I hope that you understood that. I'm not sure I made that clear. Yep. Yeah. Uh, yep. Yeah. Crystal. Clear. Yeah. Perfect. I, I would just sort of qualify. Yeah. I think you're right. It, it's we need to be careful uh, in the use of both the arguments, derivative knowledge and intuitional knowledge, and and be careful in our assessing to what degree are we warranted based on these quote unquote evidences, and and then you you can compare it. Maybe the arguments outweigh the intuitional thing or maybe vice versa like obviously i would agree with um you there, there are cases in the bible where arguments are outweighing my own uh intuitions yes. um so not uh, warranted intuition but like i, I definitely yeah there, there are I, I mean the biggest mistake tara ever did was with the focusing on the abraham test because she once raised an issue that actually did cause me cognitive dissonance, the, the issue of the 10 plagues of Egypt and do those constitute war crimes or something. That that one stop, made me stop and think. And my own intuition was, yeah, there's something to this objection kind of thing. And at the end, I, I used arguments, derivative knowledge from divine revelation to, to over counter that. But um, it, yeah, it, it doesn't, it, it wasn't something that sat easy. It, it it was difficult to kind of weigh the two forms of evidence and see, well, which one am I actually warranted in, in going with and that sort of thing. So, yeah, yeah. If, if I might just jump in there. So, yeah, so the, the thing with the intuitions is that <clears throat> seems to me that, um, I mean, the idea, for instance, is that we can find out that some of our intuitions, that if we have a good enough theory, then we can decide that certain intuitions are just wrong. We can sort of dispense them as wrong. You know, say so. It could be you know we've got a uh, an intuition maybe that we haven't thought much about, but has sort of been built up just by unconscious experience in a way that the world we live on is say flat, or that or that when I'm standing still on it, I'm standing still. Uh, when somebody comes along and tells you actually no, you're traveling at uh, what is it, a thousand miles per hour uh, as the Earth revolves, um, that you're actually traveling around at a great speed even when you think you're standing still. That certainly seems to thwart that intuition, but the theory being strong enough, you just say, well, that intuition is wrong. You know, that, that one can go. I'm not too nonplussed about that one going uh, because the, the, the theory is just so fruitful otherwise that uh, that I can just admit an intuition is wrong. There's other times, and this tends to come up in coming up with moral theories, where it's, a, it's an intuition that uh, feels harder to let go. It feels more like you're biting the bullet saying, you know, damn, I wouldn't, wouldn't like to get rid of this one, but I guess I got to kind of put that one off to the side, given the strength of uh, how the rest of my intuitions are upheld, if you see what I mean. So I think there's different different scenarios for different intuitions. 
Cool. All right. Uh, so, so yeah, uh, David, um, I I do I do have other questions for Val, but the, it's not based on his opening speech. So, I, uh, what would you? Okay. Wait. So I'm going to I'm going to go ahead and throw it to Val so that he can comment directly on your opening speech and he can also ask you questions related to that. And then we'll get into sure. uh, some more general conversation. I've actually got a a question for both of you. And because I don't take notes and I've got a really bad memory, I'm just going to put it out in the world right now. Um, and then you can address it as you like. But uh, can you. uh Talk about moral ontology in a way that is separate from human ontology. I mean, I hear a lot of discussion about moral ontology over the Internet and so forth. Um, but I don't hear Christians talk about the nature of humans so much. They're talking about the nature of morality and trying to work their way to God. But it seems to me that if you have a moral ontology that runs counter to the nature of humans, then there's something wrong with your moral ontology. And so is is are those two things really as separate and independent as they seem to be as people talk about them? Or must we must we have ontologies uh, that are consistent uh, with one another, both moral and human? That's that's my question. Both of you can uh, address that as you will. But um, I don't want to cut into your uh, opportunity to rebut uh, Dale's opening argument. So I'm throwing it to Val. Uh, yeah, Dale. I, sorry, I mean David. Um, yeah, no, no. I can I can certainly hang on to that and put it on the shelf because I think that's going to come up um, in any case, and it's worth laying a bit more groundwork before we get there, if that's all right. Um, and so, I, as as far as the questions for Dale, um, there. I'm just looking at the. Luckily, Dale, I, I appreciate that you actually wrote out. Uh, your four propositions, uh, and uh, they were on email, so I get to look at them here. And uh, uh, well, my first thing would say before I start probing any of them is that um, you mentioned a lot of this sort of based on. Well, first of all, I, th I thought you were when you uh, I thought you were headed towards uh, deontology, and then when you were going to uh, amend it with something else, I thought you were probably going to go towards something that resembled like a uh, rule utilitarianism, which a lot of people, it's almost like an attempt to merge deontology with utilitarianism um, and try and, uh, you know, disband the weaknesses of each. Um, but you actually went with the uh, virtue ethics to try and combine, which is interesting because often those are, uh, no, no, I gotta say, my, uh, I'm, not, I'm not a virtue ethicist, and my knowledge of virtue ethics isn't very strong at all, but I know generally that you don't you don't normally see the combination of deontology with virtue ethics. Um, but anyways, I was going to ask. So your your theory seems to be obviously a cognitive theory, and um, and, and I think it's worth sort of stating maybe for the audience <clears throat> like the difference between cognitive theories and non-cognitive. So I could could quickly get get that out of the way and ask you about it. So like in cognitivism, like with respect to moral discourse, generally means that moral statements uh, and moral judgments, moral rules and moral principles, they make reports or claims that are either true or false. And so a non-cognitivism would, uh, with respect to moral discourse, would say that moral statements are neither true nor false. Um, and your, your seems to be an obvious 
cognitive system. And I want to ask whether, do you, I mean, that makes sense from anybody who's a theist, right? Because generally theists are trying to ground uh, morality on a person, on God. And, uh, and, and, and I haven't heard of a non-cognitivist theistic moral system, have you? Uh, no, not not theist, uh, not from a theist for sure. Um, I just wondered you would know if there was, and I was just curious about that. Yeah, the yeah, no one's no one's bringing to mind like that. Yeah, I can't think of any theist non-cognitivist. So, um, and just for the audience, so some so an example of a non-cognitivist theory um, in metaethics defining morals would be emotivism. So. Uh, you know, moral statements or truths reduced down to mere statements of emotion. So, you know, it, it was wrong for Hitler to kill the Jews is, is kind of like, oh, God, I hate that Hitler killed the Jews or something. It, it's a statement of an emotion. So, yeah, I, I can't think of any theists uh, who hold to a non-cognitivist view. Uh, I, I also want to ask you about, um, are there uh, also years, years would be... Um, uh, uh, a moral realism. Um, so, like some moral statements are true, versus a uh, moral anti-realism where no moral statements are true. So, I mean, most uh, theistic moral theories are moral realists. Are there any that you know of? I see. These, this is what I what I want about the nature of this conversation. By the way, I'm not trying to like debate and score points. I'm just actually curious about learning more. Um, and so, are there any? Um, uh, uh, moral anti-realist um, theistic theories that you know of? Uh, Christian, uh, sorry, theories. Sorry. Moral. Yeah, are there? Yeah, I was just curious if there's any uh, moral anti-realist theories in, among theists. There wouldn't be, would there? Again, same. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. None, none that are springing to mind. Okay, I just wondered if there was some big gap in my knowledge that, that, that there was something going on that I never heard of. So, so just about your your first four points here. Um, uh, so it seems to be most of them are generally acceptable to me. It makes sense. So, like a judgment uh, truth is moral if accepted as supremely authoritative. Um, supreme. So by supremely authoritative, uh, well. I get. I, as soon as you say authoritative, I think of immediately leading to, um, you know, a William Lane Craig thing that they must. It's like uh, commandments uh, given by a competent authority, which of course is going to be God. So I'm going to reject that. But uh, you you were taking the statements in themselves as supremely authoritative, right? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Rules themselves are supremely authoritative. Yeah, they're, they're an overriding, uh, supremely overriding guide for conduct, attitudes, and motives. Yeah. And then, uh, so it entails a prescriptive, a categorical, uh, categorical imperative, uh, as per Kant and Mackey, et cetera. Um, so now that's an interesting one that I would actually like to get into later, because I certainly get why you want the categorical, categorical imperative. Um but I think there's some interesting challenges to that. But I don't want to get into it yet. Um, okay. But did you actually, so I might miss it. Did you actually tell the audience the difference between the Kant's categorical, categorical imperative versus hypothetical? Did you make that clear? Um, I, I 
think I did. Uh, da- David, did I was I clear when I explained that, or you you would be the voice of the audience? <laughs> I have no idea. I wasn't taking notes. Okay. So. Uh, there, you know, during my periods of silence, I might be in the bathroom, guys. I, um, okay. you, you don't need me. You're, I'm, you're going, my I'm going back. If I'm making I'm, sense. I'm going back to snacking. Um, <laughs> Dale, do you want to make it clear of the difference between uh, categorical and uh, hypothetical imperatives per Kant? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so in terms of categorical imperatives, so I, I prefer to call it uh, to highlight the difference. It's a pres- prescriptive imperative. Okay. So it's prescribing uh, certain conduct or attitudes or motives in a given situation. Um, maybe that's an easier way for, for the audience who don't know about technical ter- the technical terms or something versus a, a mere h- hypothetical indicative. So uh, I guess versus just a mere descriptive uh, situation. So, you know, a dis- hypothetical indicative would be like if if you want to be elected the politician, you ought to kiss the baby or something like that. The uh, prescriptive imperative is more, there's this categorical moral rule, I guess, or moral imperative that you morally ought to do this or, or that. And it, it recommends certain actions based on a certain situation. Um, there was also one thing about the first criterion that I wanted to say, because there could be some disagreement even among Christians on that one, where I say it's supremely authoritative. Um, it, do you mind if I? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, so, so in the first place, when I say it's supremely authoritative, some Christians might disagree with that. And they'll say, well, religious duties can sometimes outweigh moral uh, duties or considerations. So when I'm, I, I sort of consider, I conflate religious duties as moral duties. So, so this is why I, I'm comfortable saying moral duties are supremely authoritative. I, I don't see them in, in conflict with religious duties, but there can be a definitional difference that some Christians might take issue with there. Um, and, and also, I did qualify about the highest degree of incumbency, and, and that was with respect to non-moral truths. But there is this moral hierarchy when you're when two or more moral uh, principles come into conflict or something. And, and in that case, they don't uh, all have the highest degree of incumbency. Sometimes you have to, to pick the lesser of two evils or something like that. So I, I have to jump in uh, with a clarification question. Uh, how is that different from situational ethics? Um, I, I know it's. At a kind of a surface trivial level, you might see a difference there. But uh, when you dig a little, question is saying is there is a definite prescriptive morality in every situation, depending on what the situation is. And since no two situations are exactly alike, um, you know, you would you would need almost a God level knowledge of things to know exactly what the prescription, the, the moral prescription is. So it's it's not enough to say uh, you can you cannot kill except in self-defense, uh, because then you get a situation where two people kill and one person uh, may be ruled. Well, that wasn't self-defense. Well, but, sir, there was a there was a man with a 
uh, a gun there, but his gun didn't have any bullets, and you could have overpowered him if you rushed him. But I didn't know that. So I mean, it there. So what is what is the exact right thing for that situation? It depends on knowing uh, all of the contextual elements, almost beyond a human uh, capacity to know. And so in that, every situation might have a, a different moral prescription based on the the godlike knowledge uh that we don't have so uh, if that if any of that makes any sense how is what you're saying different from uh me just saying situational ethics yeah so so it'd be with the with the moral principles which are the overriding uh guides that that um apply to multiple situations and they can be applied in different ways depending on what the it's not that you have to know the full context it's just you have to know the the morally relevant facts to make and again these no system of ethics is going to be perfect right Uh, one of the arguments i had for when i thought we're going to discuss utilitarianism is is i argued it's impossible to know everything because everything becomes a judgment Right, but you're you're determining the moral de- prescription based on the situation, correct? I mean, you're not walking in with a set of rules uh, and saying, "Okay, I must always do this when 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 X happens." You're always evaluating the situation to determine what you should do. And so sometimes the situation might call for you to kill someone, even though there is a kind of a general rule saying thou should not kill. That's what I call situational ethics, and I'm just trying to understand how you're you're differentiating uh, what what you're saying from that. Well, yeah. So the the rules apply in every single situation. The moral rules or principles will apply in in every single situation. But yes, there there is when you're filling out the the content or something. So sometimes situations could make it. Uh, different. So that cop, right? You, you raised the example, uh, the cop that the guy used the taser and, and shot or something like that. And uh, he shouldn't have shot the, the criminal. He should have realized, oh, he, he shot it twice. So therefore he should have known better or something and should have ran to tackle him or something like that. Right. So when you're filling out the specific uh, morally relevant situation can um inform how we apply these universal moral principles that prescribe conduct but the the principles are always there in every single situation uh it's just a matter of how we apply it that where the situational ethics uh, or kind of informs um how we apply those principles right so yeah okay i i will uh, let you uh, get back to it i just wanted to um um get some clarification on that while it was on my mind i'm still not sure that i'm clear on it but i will i will let uh, you get back to answering uh val's rebuttal question <laughs> okay uh so dale so yeah i mean i'm generally fine with this proceeding on from uh one and uh and two uh when you talk about the uh it entails a prescriptive uh categorical categorical imperative um I, uh, that's one that I'll come back to, I think, later on, because I think there's some interesting ideas that um, uh, that morality can actually derive from hypothetical imperatives. 
um, which may seem counterintuitive, but I, I think there's some interesting stuff there. So, but I'm going to skip that for now. And uh, your idea that it's universalizable, um, that I'm good with that because that seems to me to be right. <laughs> uh, and uh, let's see, it involves or pertains to one or more moral agents or persons. I don't see any problem with that off the bat. So uh, there's that. I could, I, I could talk for a sec about uh, objectivity, like because we're, we're making our way towards we're being a bit descriptive right now. We want to make our way towards what would count as an objective morality and also what is the ontological basis of, uh, of say, an objective morality. So I could talk for a sec about uh, that. If sure. Well. You're, you're in charge here, Val. You, you, you got me on the grill, so. There you <laughs> okay. <laughs> so um, let me just see here. Okay. So... Uh, when we're talking about objective, um, it's, uh, I guess, in, in philosophy, it tends to be often reduced to something like if something is objective or fact is objective it's a, if it's a mind-independent fact, uh, if, it be, if it would exist or be true, whether there's a mind thinking about it or not. Um, uh, that's the most wide-ranging one. Um, but, I mean, you, when you start talking about moral theories and objectivity and other things, uh, that that's to spare. So, you know, if a mind exists, well, that's got to be a fact, right? And uh, the fact will depend on the existence of that mind. So you, you need to be able to say a mind exists. And if you've got two minds that exist and one mind holds the opinion that only one mind exists, you got to be able to say no a second mind exists, another mind exists, that's a fact, even though that fact is derived from the fact of a, that a mind exists. So it's not totally independent of the existence of a mind. So you've got to be able to talk about facts as it pertains to minds too. So if mind number one thought, I'm the only mind that exists, and there's another one that exists, well, that, that, that first mind is just simply wrong. He's made it an objectively wrong uh, statement or belief. And, uh, and so... Uh, an objective fact you can maybe boil it down to more like it's a fact that's uh, one that's true or independent of a, per a person's uh, belief or opinion about that fact. You know, it's got a truth value, as it were. Um, and I'm I, I just going to shove in here for a sec that um, when talking about uh, objective morality, uh, you'll often see certain theists and apologists um using objective in a uh, in in another way where they rephrase it or will where they they uh, phrase it as um objective is something like it's a true independent of any human mind uh and of course that's a bit self-serving because it allows them to say but it's based on god's mind you know and to be not special pleading that kind of stuff like that but but if you took the more standard view of uh, objectivity, um, you can't just leap to uh, God's opinion being uh, uh, making things uh, objective. But just you don't have to really talk about that now. So now as far as objective I'll just quickly say this. Uh, so I think I think that is kind of a so you're you're right that yeah ultimately when we get to the grounding it, it does all go back to God, who has a mind, but it, the moral principles aren't 
grounded in God's mind. They're grounded in his morally perfect nature. And that that's a distinction that, that will matter, right? Um, moral no, sure, sure. We, can, we, we can get into that. Uh, yeah, I know you have rebuttals to that, but, but I mean, it's just like if you, uh, you know, if you make that distinction, uh, you first have to get over the hurdles like, well, if aliens showed up and they thought that uh, the Twin Towers in the U.S. were still standing after 9-11, uh, it doesn't matter that they're not human. They're, they're wrong, too. So other minds that aren't human can be wrong, too. So you got to get through those hurdles to end up yeah. getting your exemption for God. That's what I mean. Um, but as far as, as, as um, looking f- to see if a moral theory is objective, um, there is uh, you sort of gotta have to be careful here because there is what um, like more I think it was you more would point out uh, as a trivial way with his open question of defining a uh, moral theory as being objective where you you can just define something as the good and therefore what ought to be done and uh, and then there are then they're obtained from that objective facts about what ought to be done. Um, and so, for instance, I, and to, to show how trivial it can be, right, I can just define that um, uh, pleasing David Johnson is good. And therefore, oh, there's going to be objective facts about uh, what pleases David Johnson that are good. And there we go. We've got objective rules for what ought to be done. Uh, so, yeah, you can sort of leap from one to the other. But it seems a bit trivial because you can sort of define almost anything as a starting point and then draw facts as to what will satisfy the odds of that system. Um, so that's now now some there are there are a number of moral theories that nonetheless make something like that move. Like for instance, Sam Harris's theory is often accused of making that move of sort of just sort of um defining the good as essentially what would be uh, the the well-being of conscious entities, you know, and increasing the well-being of uh, conscious entities or something like it uh, is uh, is good, uh, decreasing or anything that thwarts it uh, will be bad. Um, and then, then, as he pointed out, Ed, once you once you learn about the uh, what makes a conscious entity, um, uh, uh, once you learn more things about the well-being of a conscious entity, say if you take a human being, there's going to be facts about what will uh, thwart our well-being and what will support our well-being. And so people can say, well, that's one of those easy cases of just sort of defining your axiom and then everything sort of follows from it. Um, And I think there's something to that charge, but I don't think it's that easy a rebuttal of what Harris is doing. But the big prize isn't making that move. Uh, Like Harris says, look, I can make that move because even in science and everywhere else, we're actually making axiological assumptions. And so here's mine. Um, but the big prize in uh, the objective moral theory is that not that there are objectively true facts that derive from an axiom that you may define arbitrarily, but that the um, the basis itself, the moral theory itself and its axiom is itself an objective fact. So that uh, it's sort of a, an irrefutable objective fact itself. So it is really the only theory which is uh, the objectively true one. Um, so that's the, that's the big prize that people go for, and some 
you know, have better thrust at it than others, I think. Yeah, it, uh, yeah, that that sounds right to me, right? Yeah, the 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 basic foundation upon which uh, the the rest of the moral actions or, or beliefs or whatever are founded on, yeah, that that's got to be objectively true, and it's not just okay, give me, let's start with this axiom, uh, whether unwarranted or not, and go from there. And that that was kind of the the example I, I gave. Um, so philosophers will, I, I sort of put this, and, and I think you kind of defended me, Val, when I was um, debating with Darren on the, the comment boards months ago about, you know, like, okay, well, given given humanism, we should do this or, or that, or we ought to do this or that. And I was saying, okay, but why, why adopt humanism versus human destructionism? What, what can you say if Donald Trump is got his finger on the nukes and he says, uh, I'm going for um, human destructionism. There, there's nothing uh, Darren can say to say, no, you you ought to prefer the goal of humanism or something like that. And and philosophers phrase this in, in this is um, a problem in meta-ethical relativism where it's, it's kind of how do you, okay, why, why should someone adopt the moral, the quote-unquote moral point of view in the first place? Um, some some people will just say no i, I don't want to follow that or, or something and if you, you you want to have an objective fact to say no well you ought to do this this is what is actually good um and yeah if you don't have that if you've just got this axiom there's not much you can say it leads to those problems of moral relativism and, and arbitrariness yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that gets to. Um, uh, I think that suggests the role of reason in uh, establishing something as objective. But personally, I don't want to jump to that yet. I wouldn't mind, um, unless you want, unless you have something else you want to say beforehand. I wouldn't mind um, discussing that Hume's is ought. Uh, dilemma, because I think that's another thing that's related to the, the ground for uh, the problem of ontology for a, a system. Um, would you like me to speak about it, or is there anything else you want to say or, or add in? Uh, yeah, no, I'm happy for you to, to go ahead with the Izzat, um problem there. Okay, Okay. Yeah. so before you Sorry. before you do that, uh, I want to I want to do one thing, because it looks like we're getting into a uh, conversation phase, and I don't want to uh, interrupt that when it's going well. Um, I won't, uh, before you get into the is uh, which is a, a big piece of this, I think, I would like to hear both of you um, dis- kind of describe your definition of the good. Because one of my theories is that Christians and non-Christians are not talking about the same thing. Uh, in, at, at a trivial level, they may be kind of talking about the same thing. It sounds like they're talking about the same thing. But as they as the conversation gets deeper, you realize that they, they are actually not talking about the same thing. And so um, we'll, we'll see how this conversation goes. But uh, before it goes too far, I'd like to see if up front we can get some 
definitional understanding of the good because it, it every time I have this conversation somewhere in the conversation the Christian accuses me of well I don't I don't understand the good or I'm just assuming that the good is this and my my evaluation of the good may be wrong well at that point I realize well we're not talking about the same thing at all um, so with that I will uh, ask both of you to just kind of briefly define what you mean by the good and we may um, revisit this later in the conversation just use that for first oh uh, I, I, go, ahead. go ahead okay uh, yeah so like I said I'm uh, I haven't settled on any particular theory um, but I do find some more compelling than the others who seem to at least get off to a better start and uh, one I was going to bring up uh, uh, later on, and I would like to discuss it more later on because we're moving towards this sort of objectivity and ontology, um, would uh, actually be um, uh, a utilitarian theory. Um, and it's a, uh, it's a desirism and it sees desires as the ontological basis of uh, value. Um, so uh, what is good is uh, that which is such as to fulfill the desire, desires in question. Um, and uh, morality consists on uh, evaluating desires themselves on their ability to fulfill or thwart other desires. Uh, but you're going to need an explanation of that, and that'll come later. All right. So, so my research wasn't in vain on utility. No, no, no. I went. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, so David, yeah, my my answer to your question is, I I understand what you're doing, but I I I sort of see it as almost like a trick. Um, because you, you're trying to take away common ground. Now, I'm not saying this is what your motive is, but I'm, I'm, I, it comes across that way sometimes um, because it, it's kind of like what Val was saying with his example of the fire. We, we all have, look, I, I define what moral truths are. I gave those four criteria and you, you heard it from Val, apart from one or two minor issues or, or, or that, he, he more, we more or less have common ground on what we're speaking about uh, when it comes to moral truths. Uh, where the differences perhaps come in is with the ontological grounding, but that that's not necessary. When we're speaking about just morals proper, a, a five-year-old, I can have the same understanding as a five-year-old, whether he understands, oh, well, does God uh, provide the ontological grounding for, for moral principles or duties? Uh, they, they don't need that. So I, I think that yeah, you're, you're focusing on a particular aspect to, to drive um, a wedge kind of thing um, between where we where most people do have common ground. When we're, we're talking about morals, we have this general sense of, of what we're talking about. Sure. So I, I can I can appreciate that concern. I can assure you that that is not the case. Yeah. Uh, I always go into the uh, discussion of morality assuming that we're talking about the same thing and i'm always proven wrong as as the conversation goes on far enough and so a lot of the conversation ends up uh being talking past one another because you're not in fact talking about the same thing and so this is what i want to establish up front either that we are in fact talking about the same thing or that we are not talking about the same thing because uh, just as an example and we've you know we've got several uh, a podcast to go in this series, and so this question is going to be revisited, uh, revisited again and again. Um, but just as an example, uh, if I say, "Well, um, human flourishing is good, and uh, it's good that people 
uh, never experience hunger. Uh, and it is it is very it is quite frequently the case that the Christian will respond, well, wait a minute. It's not necessarily a good thing that humans never experience hunger. And then I have to wonder, well, what do you, what are you talking about when you're talking about good? Because we're not talking about the same category of thing anymore. If there is something that you see good about experiencing hunger. Uh, and so when we get into it definitionally, then, you know, we get into, you know, God's will and, you know, God's ultimate plan and that sort of thing. And that becomes the the definition of what is good. So I'm not trying to create a trap. I'm trying to avoid uh, talking past one another as this uh, as this moves forward. Uh, hey, David, if I can uh, try and answer that. Yes. Uh, so number one, I would say that. Uh, that can can kind of be. You can you can say that we are agreement on we are trying to find out when talking about the good uh, or morality what we ought to do or ought not do. And so if you have a di- disagreement of the type you just talked about. Um, you may be disagreeing there. Uh, you're not disagreeing on the project of the morality that you both share. You're disagreeing on a specific specific recommendation. And so you are, since you both share the project of justifying what you what we ought to do or not, you can, on that level, discuss whether one act is more justified than the other. So you you have that as your shared guide. And secondly, uh, Dale's four propositions, uh, I can I can sort of accept uh, them enough so that we can sort of go on with this conversation. So I, and I feel like we are generally talking about the same thing, at least enough to move along. So that's how I would answer that question. Okay, then I will uh, see the conversation move along, but I'll be watching it closely. <laughs> uh, but just to back you up there, David, just because I uh, the, threw that out there or whatever, but yeah, there, there is normative ethical theories, right? Um, that kind of, well, how do you, how do we determine the, the good or the good versus bad thing to do, right? So, you, you know, utilitarianism, as Val would say, um, based on a, a principle of utility or something like that, or or I have, or deont- deontology, it's okay. Well, something's good if it follows a moral rule. Or right, principle. but well, don't don't go too fast back by that because D- Val's utility is um, utilitarian explanation there. Just as an example that he gave, I don't know if he was saying this is how he believes, but uh, the utility might be to fulfill a desire. Uh, and that's at the heart of then deciding what is uh, the utility to fulfill that. But the Christian would, I think, almost universally say fulfilling human desire is not uh, the goal at all. Uh, and that that has no part of it. And so at that point, you do have a fundamental disagreement. And no matter how you how nicely you talk past that, you're not talking about the same thing. Then that's why I tried to sort of lay the groundwork as to what generally moral theories are trying to achieve. And if I, if what I said was agreeable, then we do have sort of 
grounds to agree upon uh, whether, you know, one theory is uh, fulfilling those duties or not. Do you see what I mean, Dale, or, or do you? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, all right. Um, all right, well, yeah, I guess at this point, do you, do you mind if I like probe you a little bit just to so so you you would agree val from what i'm and, and i'm just gonna i'm gonna go ahead and step out of the conversation um uh here and let you go back uh back and forth i'll i'll jump in uh from time to time but li with limited commercial breaks cool okay um perfect uh so so yeah you you would agree val on your end you you would disagree with um, skeptics like Dave, like David, who are sub moral subjectivists, you, you are first. You do think morality is objective, is the sense that I'm getting. Well, I find uh, moral realist theories uh, uh, more compelling. Yeah. Gotcha. And I, 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 yeah, I just find that. Uh, um, yeah, I'll just I'll just put it that way for now. Yeah. And uh, in terms of your own uh, position on normative ethical theories, you, my understanding is you, you're not, you don't have a, f a firm opinion one way or the other. You're you're kind of open to the merits of of some. Are are there any uh, normative like ethical egoism, for example? Is that can, can you rule that out, or are you open to that well, still? Yeah, yeah, no, I uh, um, I don't think ethical egoism really works uh either um and uh and for reasons that i guess get into the role of reason uh, so i so it, it it seems to me various moral theories have had insights that strike me as hard to disagree with and at some point at some point i might get off off board with them but i retain some of those insights and uh, and so uh, like there's insights as far as re the role of reason um, in establishing morality, like from Kant and elaborations of, of of Kant that seem to make sense for me. So I sort of sort of incorporate that into even the, a a, a uh, utilitarian theory as well. Sort of the way you're trying to combine theories as well. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and with the utilitarianism then, so. I think I got a glimpse of, of you hinting at in, in terms of uh, so there are different aspects to utilitarian theory that we can focus on. The, the first one um, that both you and David have mentioned is, OK, well, what's the, the theory of value? What What is this unit of utility that we're trying to get? What is the, the valuable thing? And from for, it sounds like you would take sort of the more modern subjective preference utilitarian view rather than just a hedonistic utilitarian view or a pluralistic utilitarian view is that and that's closer to it it's not specifically preference utilitarianism uh, or mode of uh, utilitarianism it's it's more very specifically that the one i find more interesting is uh it used to be called desire utilitarianism now it's called desireism it's by uh, uh, alonzo fife a uh, very interesting guy um but now I, I certainly go ahead and ask you questions i was I was sort of heading towards this, sort of trying to lay some more groundwork about um, is all the role of reason, and then with once we have that in view, talking about our okay now what can we ground um, morality in as far as the ontology and is it objective or not? Okay, so um, yeah, so I, I want to get from Hume and the ontological questions that arise from 
his observation, um, and then to uh, and then the role of reason, which obviously plays a big role uh, in your theory of morality. So the whole Hume's is a observation. Uh, since it, since it came from just one, essentially one short paragraph that he wrote, I think it's worth just reading it to the audience to see. And and this really made a a big splash in philosophy. Uh, so uh, this is just reading Hume in his old English. He's from the uh, Scottish philosopher from the 1700s. Um, he said, uh, in every system of morality, uh, which I have uh, hitherto met with, I have always remarked that the author proceeds for some time in the ordinary way of reasoning and establishes the being of a god or makes observations concerning human affairs, when of a sudden I am surprised to find that instead of the usual copulations of propositions is and is not, or facts, I meet with no proposition that is not connected with an ought or an ought not. This change is imperceptible, but is, however, of the last consequence. For as this ought or ought not expresses some new relation or affirmation, it's necessary that it should be observed and explained, and at the same time that a reason should be given for what seems altogether inconceivable, how this new relation can be a deduction from the others, which are entirely different from it. But as authors do not commonly use this precaution, I shall presume to recommend it to the readers, and am persuaded that this small attention would subvert all the vulgar systems of morality, and let us see the distinction of vice and virtue is not founded merely on the relations of objects, nor is perceived by reason. So, I mean, I think that was around the time when Hume was, um, was uh, he thought that morality was essentially derived from sentiment or the passions. He was, uh, he was sort of acting like a subjectivist, almost even like a, um, like a non-cognitivist, where he's saying that, you know, um, uh, this, is, this is good means I like it. But he wasn't really a non-cognitivist. But anyway, the point is, he, he is, he's pointing out the distinction between facts and values, between uh, is statements of fact and ought statements about uh, values or what we ought to do. And um, he's pointing uh, he's pointing out that, I mean, we all in our everyday understand that one, a fact statement doesn't entail an ought. So, uh, you know, if I just made the, uh, uh, the statement, um, my house is on fire, nobody recognizes that as uh, establishing or entailing that my house ought to be on fire. Or if I tell you a fact that there's children starving in some part of the world, that's a, a statement of fact and is statement. It is the case that some children are starving. Nobody leaps from that to it entailing children ought to be starving in that part of the world. And so they're just, you can just keep piling up factual statements. The sky is blue, the grass is green, bus number 85 leaves in 10 minutes, and you will never get from those statements of fact is statements to, to automatically entailing an ought statement. And, um, and what he's pointing out is that but when people start talking about their morality, um, people seem to suddenly slip into this equivocation naturally and not even noticing it, and that we're so used to it that most of us don't even notice it. And he's bringing it to our attention that anytime somebody has made a statement that's an is statement, it seems to be a fact statement, that 
you're supposed to also accept as establishing ought statement, you should say, hold on, wait. One seems different from the other, and you need to at least give me an explanation of how you're deriving one from the other and moving from the is statement to the ought. And so this um, philosopher sort of uh, caught on to this and uh, dug into it, and there's been all sorts of views. Um, there are some views where philosophers have decided that you just can't derive an, uh, an ought from an is. It's just impossible, and it's so impossible uh, that, that uh, it's become what's known to them as Hume's law. It's a law that you can't derive an ought from an is. Whereas you have other philosophers, moral philosophers, uh, saying, no, you can't derive an ought from an is, and this is how you do it. And they're, uh, but but the, especially those who think that that you you simply can't get an ought from the world that is, um, you you start thinking about well if there is ought then it's not part of the world that is. If if ought exists then it's got to be in some realm separate from the world of facts that is. All the facts we can talk about in this world. And so then you, you, you do get some philosophers who bite that bullet and say, yeah, I think oughts do exist, real oughts, but they're, you know, for instance, uh, in a platonic realm, platonic oughts. Uh, and so, you know, uh, you get problems with that, like you have any problems with any theory, but that, that's what I'm saying where an ontological problem comes up is can you find ought in the world of is? And if not, do oughts exist? And if they do, what is the nature of the existence of uh, those oughts? So that's that's what you should get out of uh, Hume's is an ought. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, not much to to add. Like I I agree with a lot of what you said there, but um, just to, a helpful way for the audience that I I found um, when I when I taught the class um, on, on ethics back uh, last summer. Um, one way that I phrased it to think of the is ought gap problem or, or whatever, so or the fact that you can't cannot derive an uh, ought from an is, is to think of it this way. So pretend you have premise one in a deductive argument. So uh, Jenny is being put in pain uh, by John poking her with a pen. This is this is a factual descript descriptive proposition or premise, right? It, it's the is. You know, Jenny is in pain because John is poking it with the pen. So that's the factual statement. And then you you have con a conclusion saying, therefore, John ought to stop poking Jenny with a pen. And there's this gap. It's, it's a it's a non sequitur argument. So you need to plug in some additional premises to plug that gap and get to that ought. And th the way I would do that uh, for, for my position on morality is I, I would plug in a moral principle as a premise number two. And then I would plug in a premise three saying, you know, one ought to not violate a moral principle or something. So that that could be a, a helpful way of, of understanding. You've got this premise one, this factual is statement or descriptive statement. You've got a conclusion that a prescriptive conclusion. John ought to stop poking this girl with this pen. And how do you plug that gap? What premises do you do you plug in to fill it? And Obviously, I have my answer as a, a moral deontologist and virtue ethicist or something like that. But yeah, like that, just for understanding the problem, there there is that gap. What premises do you 
uh, as an atheist or a Christian or whatever, what do you plug in there to, to get that conclusion as a logically deductive argument? Yeah. yeah. Thank you. I'm sorry, Dale. Oh, no worries. Yeah, that, hopefully that's helpful. Uh, it, 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 yeah, for sure. Because I think, to me, um, I, I, it drives me crazy when, for instance, people like Sam Harris, who hmm. think they've essentially solved the ISOP problem, or not even solved it, dismissed it as not even a problem. Um, yeah. It drives me crazy because, um, okay, if, 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 if you solved it, that's fine. I'm willing to listen. But what I can't stand is the idea of the baby being thrown out with a bathwater because it is an extremely powerful tool uh, once you just recognize it for, as, 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 as Hume said, to recognize vulgar systems of morality. So it's just, it's, it starts to become so easy to notice when somebody is making an is statement that you're supposed to presume or they're presuming entails an ought, just like the one you gave. But it also, I mean, even like atheists can use it, atheists recognize this all the time uh, when a theist says uh, God commanded to do X. Well, that's an is statement. It is the fact that God commanded X. How do you derive ought from that? You, you've got to give me yeah. your explanation. Yeah. Um, and then there's there's questions about how you get there. And, and it's fairly, um, I mean, it's fairly common acknowledged by lots of philosophers that you can kind of draw a bridge uh, by sticking in a goal, for instance, um, in between. Uh, so it's not that you are deriving ought from an is statement. You are providing a bridge between you. You are a, a, you are providing a bridge from the ought to the is statement via a goal. So so if I have the goal of uh, if I have the goal of driving to New York, um, then I ought to have my uh, fill up my gas tank, you know, that kind of stuff like that. So you put in a goal and you get uh, from uh, from sort of is to on. Um, but there's also attempts to directly derive um, ought from is, which I find interesting, too. But uh, again, that we'll get to, you know, as we go on. OK, so uh, that's an interesting idea dale tell me the is ought conundrum that's uh, being discussed right now doesn't the christian and the atheist have the same is out is ought problem or do you feel that one has the advantage uh so so yeah as as val said uh there, there can be the same problem in terms of the premise right how do you derive that conclusion um and the christian theists will have different answers to that. Um, so, so I would say that I think the Christian is uh, better suited to plug the gap. There, there are additional premises to, to make that conclusion. Right. But aren't the, aren't the additional premises also just is statements? I mean, at the end of the day, you can, you can try deontology. Well, there is a law that says you shouldn't do that, but you're still derive you're still trying to derive, therefore you should obey the law. And you haven't you you haven't made that connection, or you can oh. say, well, it's virtuous to uh, cause pleasure rather than pain, but you still haven't created an ought there. And so I I was listening very closely to your efforts to kind of your suggestions as to how to plug the gap. It doesn't seem to me that they actually plug the gap at all. 
Well, they, they do, actually. So, so taking the deontologist answer uh, and leaving virtue ethics out of it and everything like that, just that simple deont- deontological thing. So I give two premises. I didn't even need to do that, but I'm just spelling it out. But so, so premise two would be, OK, what's the moral principle, you know, moral principle, the, the principle of non-malfeasions, do no harm to people, is being violated. That's an is statement, right? Yep. So I don't care. So then three is one ought not to violate moral principles. Right. And that's and that's the leap. That's the leap that you're making. Anytime you put in uh, an ought, it's always a leap. I don't care that uh, there's a law of doing no harm. I want to do harm. You can't get me from the fact that there is a law to do no harm to I ought not to do harm. You, right. you just think that you're plugging the gap, but you're not actually plugging the gap. You, you're just creating another gap. No, no, it, it's plugging the gap. But what you're objecting to is you're saying you don't buy my premise. You think it's an unsound premise there. No, no, I'm saying that it's just a gap. You're just adding another is. So, yes, I understand. I, I will even accept there is a rule rule to do no harm. I'll, you can name any rule you want, and I'll just accept it for the sake of this conversation and say, so how do we get to the alt from that rule? You have not gotten me there. You've just you've just piled more is you know, as if logs on the fire. You're just building a bigger fire. No, man. Pre- premise three is not an is statement. It's it's a prescriptive. No. That's right. But you just but you just pull that. You could have gotten you didn't have to have the other premises. Uh, You're just jumping to an ought. Now, you may be explaining more about why you think that ought should happen, but you were not logically making a a prescription that I have to follow. It's kind of like saying, well, God uh, knows the ultimate good for humans, and that's why you should obey God. But I should I can still say I don't want the ultimate good for humans. I want the second best uh, good for humans. Why ought I want the ultimate good for humans? You have not bridged the gap well, by just making another is statement. But that it's not an is statement. It's an ought. It's a prescriptive premise. Number three is a prescriptive statement that I right. and, and so you, you haven't given. Objective. You haven't gotten me from premise two to premise three. This is what I'm saying. Uh, premise. You're right that premise two is an is statement and premise three is an ought statement, but there is no bridge. It's it's a premise, though. Like I, I, I would need to provide warrant for this, right? If you if you come and deny that premise and say, well, no, I think I ought to to violate moral principles or something like that. So this this third premise is wrong. And in the first place, I when you plug a more under deontology, when I put in a moral principle. Um, and say that it's being violated, I don't need to spell out premise number three. It's automatically assumed because deontology says it's good in and of itself not to violate moral principles. But what you're debating me on is is the warrant for the premises. And and I'm just... No, I'm I'm not debating you on the warrant of the premises. I'm granting all of the premises to be true and saying you still hadn't made a bridge between is and ought. Okay, so Val, I uh, just uh, had a little bit of um, a challenge with Dale. You guys are talking about um, is and oughts, and Dale proposed a type of formula uh, that might plug the gap. And I was I was simply saying that I find I find that unsatisfactory. Well, um, 
the, as you stated it, I'd agree with you uh, that, you know, that you still have to be given a reason to accept the deontological rule he's putting forth. Right, but um, I have to accept the reason. Oh, I'm sorry? I would have to accept the reason. This is this is the thing. I the only ought that is valid for me is my acceptance of that ought. That's it. Um, so you can give me a reason. You can give me a good reason not to cause unnecessary pain, but that reason does not translate to a necessary ought for me. Dale, do you want to rebut? Uh, did you, were you getting David's point about trying to give him? reasons to essentially accept your moral claims or your your deontological rule did you want to do that and uh whenever i can jump in because i have stuff that i think will probably maybe bolster what you're going to say uh so so yeah i so i think i understand it but every time i state my understanding david says no i'm, I'm wrong so i don't i don't think i understand what his objection is so my, my thinking with the, this is odd thing, right? We have premise one, it's a descriptive state of affairs. And then we have a, a gap. We have the conclusion, therefore, John ought to stop poking Jenny with the pen. And I, I plugged that gap with two premises. So the, the first, uh, the second premise uh, is uh, just a, another descriptive statement. It's, it's stating that poking Jenny with a pen, causing her pain, violates a moral principle, the, the principle of non-Malfesians. Like, yep, you're right, there's no ought, that's a descriptive one. But then premise number three provides the prescriptive premise that says one ought not to violate a moral principle. And that this is stated as an objective fact. So Dave, David, he can't uh, say he doesn't buy that or not believe or not believe it or if he does then it, it's in the form of a challenge like well prove premise number three is is true uh is warranted or something he, he's right. he's challenging my premise essentially but when i ask him he says no that's not what i'm doing so i, I don't get what he's trying to say right and so i'm not challenging your premise uh that uh it is a, a moral rule and that one I'm not challenging that it's a moral rule. What I'm challenging is that one, therefore, ought not violate the moral rule. That's what I'm challenging. Yeah. So you're so you're challenging premise three, and, and that's where I would need to go in and prove that this premise is true in, in some. Yes, way. you would have to prove that there is an ought here. Yes. Which which leaves you exactly where you were with uh, in the first place. Well, no. So it's, the the problem that we started with was how do we get to this this specific conclusion that John ought to stop poking Jenny with a pin? And I've provided a way to get there on condition that I can prove my gap filling premises are are in fact true. Um, so it's on that condition. If, if that's all you're saying, then of course that that's the same with every deductive argument, whether it's a descriptive, whatever it is, you have to prove your premises are true for the conclusion to actually follow. Right. So I don't want to belabor the issue. And I want you guys to get back to your conversation unless you just want to make this a part of it. I, I know that there will be comments around this, but I just want the audience to understand my objection here. I am granting all of Dale's 
premises other than premise three, which is you ought to do it. And all that is is just a statement of of the conclusion. Uh, You know, you ought not violate moral rules is where we get the first ought statement here. So you have to go from this is a moral violation of a of a, an objective rule to I ought not violate it. And that's that's the work that you have ahead of you. So I can um, I can jump in with something that I think might help both of us, Dale. <laughs> yeah, sure. Unless you have something to say that I want to jump. It, yeah, no need to address me further on this. I'm going to go on mute and uh, I'll go back to audience status. Cool. Um, yeah, I'll let you have the last word on this one. I think we're good. Oh, okay. So should I mention the role of reason? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. So I think because I think this will play out in both of our theories, as it were. So uh, it is a bit hard to, for me to precisely understand exactly David's objection, but it seems to be running along the lines of of look, you can give me your moral claims, your theories, but uh, I can always do what I want to anyway. And really the only thing that gives me a reason to do something are the reasons I have and what I want to reject or not. Um, And that is, um, it's funny because that kind of objection, I don't know if that captured exactly David's, but it's a very sort of common type of objection to moral theories um, but it's a sort of a trivial form of objection that can object to any theory, no matter how sound, because even if you established through reason and say evidence, a sound moral theory that uh, there are objective right and wrongs, like say you establish it on God, you establish the existence of a God and you establish through sound reasoning and evidence that uh, morality derives from that God and that and that uh, God's commands um, uh, entail an ought. And so if you should worship, um, God commands to worship me, you should worship me. Somebody can always say, well, yeah, so what? God said that I'm not going to worship him anyway. And I, I don't have to, I don't want to. Um, and that is sort of seen as a sort of a refutation of the reasoning. But uh, but it's not at all a refutation because because of reasoning, uh, what you're asking for, what we're asking for when we're reasoning are w- what reasons exist to do something or not. Um, so, uh, so I mean, when when you when the theist, for instance, um, even says something like, uh, "If there's no God, then why shouldn't I just steal your stuff or go rape your wife or all that kind of stuff like that?" You can see immediately that that what's being asked for is a reason for an action. You're you're asking for reasons and we're in the realm of reasoning. And uh, and then so once you're doing that, you just have to keep in mind that we're in the realm of reason. You're asking for reasons. And if you're doing that, then you're going to be evaluating that the way you evaluate anything on reason. So let's just talk about reason for a second. What, What is reason? So Hume had a pretty pithy formulation, and I'm just kind of paraphrasing, paraphrasing from memory, but it's like reason is that which we use to discover what is true and what is false. Or another uh, pithy version is like the faculty, reason the faculty or process of drawing logical inferences. But it's uh, reason actually really, if you look at it, it's 
more expansive that it needs to encompass more. And um, and actually the, the opening Wikipedia page is actually, I think, good on this because it expands on it. So uh, take the first part, it says reason is the capacity of consciously making sense of things, applying logic and adapting or justifying practices, intuitions and beliefs based on new or existing uh, information, the use of the intellect. So something important to note is that reasoning, especially insofar as it incorporates logic, has the aim of reducing contradictions in our thinking. Uh, reasoning is fundamentally about consistency and coherency, where we're trying to produce conclusions that fit without contradiction into an ever-widening coherent framework. This is why reasons can't admit of contradictions and reason is inherently universalizing. It consists of using or discovering principles that are valid or sound for any rational being. So if I say uh, my desire to survive gives me a reason to leave this burning building, then this is inherently based on some principle of reason such that anyone in the relevant situation who has a desire to survive a burning building will have the same reason uh, uh, to leave the building. Um, and it's when people don't acknowledge the universalizing properties of reason, of its principle-based properties, that we object and point out to someone they're wrong on pains of inconsistency. We would not accept the claim, it's okay for me to speed over the speed limit because I want to, but not for you to speed because you want to, right? The first thing we say is, this is inconsistent. You have not given a reason for your speeding over the limit. Um, because it is not fitting consistently and it's not, you're not um, using a principle consistently, your special pleading, the fallacy of arguing on a rule that seems made up just for the individual. So the person can, of course, try and justify his own exception and say, but the speed limit doesn't pertain to me because I have red hair. But the problem is that will turn out to be when you look at how it fits into the wider coherency of what we accept via reason, it'll turn out to be an irrelevant difference in terms of making that exception. Exceptions can be made, but they have to be made by appeal to relevantly, relevantly different states of affairs and making exceptions, uh, sorry, the exceptions can be made, but they have to be made by appeal to relevantly different states of affairs and making such exceptions itself depends on being consistent with the nature of the exceptions that we make elsewhere. So for instance, we will find justifications for why police cars can exceed the, the speed limit and it'll be coherent with the exceptions we make for ambulances and fire engines, et cetera. So this is the nature of reason. It works on principles, it's universalizable, and it seeks consistency and, in, and coherency. So simply saying, uh, but I want to, you know, uh, uh, you've given me a rule that says I shouldn't steal your stuff, but I want to steal you. But so what? I want to steal your stuff. The question is whether you have reasons to reject the uh, arguments establishing the principle and whether you have better reasons for, for instance, stealing my stuff. And the problem is, those better reasons are you're, are going to be universalizable, and if they end up in contradictions, and if they also, if you don't provide a coherent framework for how your reason to steal my stuff fits in with the rest of the justifications you can offer for how you go about life, 
you're not going to be reasoning. You're not going to be giving a reason to re to either steal my stuff or you're not going to be giving a reason to reject my argument. I mean, even the famous uh, the whipping girl of philosophy, like Ayn Rand, right, who came up with her sort of virtuistic selfishness and her objectivism. Like, it, there's, there's, there's no philosophy that I'm aware of that actually has justified pure individual selfishness. So even Ayn Rand's was, even Ayn Rand would say that the um, realizing your, uh, your own uh, goals is something that everybody should do and ultimately is the best way for um, us all to flourish. So it's universalizable. You, you can't get a purely selfish ethics because you just end up hitting too much incoherent, uh, inconsistency. So that's a problem. You can't, you can't just say, well, I reject it. Once you're asking for reasons for why you should or shouldn't do something, then we've got to be consistent. Okay. All right. Um, yeah, I guess just one question on, on the use of rationality um, from the perspective of, you know, you, you sort of mentioned you're along the lines of uh, a utilitarian. So are you using prescriptive rationality or descriptive rationality? Uh, am I using those for what? So, so like with using uh, prescriptive rationality, um, basically it, it entails two things, right? So you, you have to have the ability to have warranted beliefs uh, about what is intrinsically valuable in the first place. Um, and, and there are differences on that front. And two, um, having those beliefs ap uh, appropriately inform one's desires. Um, mm -hmm. And so some people will say on uncertain, like with utilitarianism, if it's uh, subjective, uh, a form of subjective utilitarianism, you can't get that. You, you have to revert to some sort of like pluralistic utilitarianism, which the, the problem with that form, the, the reason why most utilitarians today don't take that form is because, well, how, how do you judge the different value-laden items uh, like you know D david and marvin were having a good argument about he like uh pleasure and play hedonistic pleasure and plain pleasure versus pain ratio compared to truth with their uh joyous experience machine or something and david was saying well i'll take i'll value the pleasure versus pain pain ratio and marvin was saying no truth is where we would get so if, if you're going down the prescriptive objective route the, the main issue with pluralistic thing is, well, how, how do you come up with a consistent way of judging each case, which value should take precedence and that sort of thing, um, especially if you don't just rely on like a deontological rule to, to help adjudicate that. So, yeah, like that would be my question is how, how do you what are your thoughts on how you would make sense to prescribe which objective values are rational to go for? Well, yeah, funny. I actually listened to part of that podcast and I came up uh, uh, to that part uh, with the experience machine. And I always liked that thought experiment um, because I think it gets at some interesting thing. And I loved David's answer to it, which is that he would take it. And there are some moral theories that have trouble with David's answer saying, count me in. Um, and uh, and uh, uh, especially that, that have trouble with... Uh, incommensurable values and that kind of stuff like that. So 
uh, whereas Marvin would not uh, jump in the experience machine. So how do you solve that? Um, I think that the uh, particular uh, utilitarian theory I'm going to bring in has something to say to that. And I will, I could start with going into the whole thing, but um, am I allowed to ask you, uh, since we were, we had been looking at your statements as to, because we were trying to get along from your statements as to how you end up grounding something objective. And I had a question going on about um, whether you're grounding the objectivity in reason, in your deontological rule, or whether you're somehow kicking that back and grounding it in God, and how do you make that move? Am I allowed to ask that now? Yeah, sure. Uh, and, and I promise you, I promise you all the questions that you can push me on, I will absolutely get to them. You'll be able to knock them all down. Okay. Uh, all right. Yeah, no, it's more just probing on, on my end. I'm not trying to knock you down. I just want to know your, get your view kind of thing. I promise I'll get explicit on it. All right, cool. Um, so, so, so yes, I, I do. Uh, obviously, I ground morality in God's nature, morally perfect nature. Um, so everything goes back to that. Uh, now, obviously, God is uh, perfectly logical and rational by nature as well. So um, his moral nature is going to be consistent with rationality. And, and insofar as human beings, rationality is uh consistent with with god uh god's rationality then we're, we're all going to be in sync on, on that front yeah go ahead uh, okay so the if you say you've got a deontological rule um the uh, the the ought comes from the reasons from that rule or from god's nature i'm still not clear on that uh, so the, I mean, God, God may have a nature of being rational, um, but that still doesn't tell me why I ought to follow any deontological rule. Yeah, so so the reason we would follow the deontological rules, so, so number one, they are good to follow in and of themselves. And this is where the virtue ethics part comes in, because... Okay, but, right, but that's the... That's exactly seems where you seem to be parting ways with God. It, it doesn't sound, I know you can get there, but that's where it says to me, God isn't necessary uh, for the, the goodness of those rules. God, it, it may be that the rules, um, that God is rational and that God would affirm that rule. But insofar as that rule can be affirmed by a rational being, that's what you need, not a God. And insofar as we can understand the rational rule, it seems to me we can affirm that rational rule, and that seems to actually give the uh, the ought there without God. But keep going. Yeah, well, for for sure you wouldn't you don't necessarily need belief in God, right? The the natural moral law is written on our hearts, but ontologically speaking, that's what I'm saying. Ontologically speaking, it sounds like you don't need God from what I just said. Well, then I, I'm not sure I understand that, because the, the moral rules complement the production of certain virtuous character traits that are designed within us for our benefit, uh, just, and that's in God's nature. God def nature defines the good, 
um, for all persons and that sort of thing. And he designs us consistent with his nature. So by by following these moral rules, we develop uh, characters that are fit uh, for our purpose of life or, or to have a deep uh, well-being. I'm sort of a classical essentialist. I, I don't like more modern virtue ethicists that deny uh, that are take an anti-essentialist view. So th this is how they complement each other. Um, the, these rules are good in, in and of themselves to follow, and they also produce desired character traits for me to uh, fulfill my God-designed purpose in my life and, and get that state of deep well-being or bliss, as, as it's called. Okay, so so if you could give me a deontological, one of your rules, that is good in and of itself, I want to see how that derives from God. How it derives? So it's, it's Yeah, how it, derives, how it depends on God. I, I'm still not clear yet. Because cause you keep saying good in and of itself, which to me says not dependent on a God. Well, so so put it this way. So there's a principle of a moral principle of justice or moral principle of truth, right? Mm -hmm. These it doesn't make any sense to say that pretending that there, I've proven there are these principles. We we don't seem to disagree on that, but I, I know David would. But let's just for the sake of argument say that these principles do exist in, in an objective. And I would want to push that to say necessary. Log they are logically necessary moral principles. Um, well, what what on earth can ground them? It doesn't make sense to say the principle of justice just exists or the principle of truth exists in some abstract way any more than to say the number one exists. Um, these are principles that are, have to be grounded in a person. A, a person is just or, or an act just or something, right? So it's, this is the first argument, first of three arguments that theists will give to say, to argue against something like atheistic moral Platonism, and they'll say a person, the principles have to be grounded in persons. Persons are just. Uh, a principle, an abstract principle, can't be just in and of itself. Um, yes. So, and it makes no sense to say they exist, in my opinion. Okay, so so as I said, it I don't think it makes sense to picture abstract objects just existing. Um, you know, like the principle of justice, that they're necessarily attached. They, they only exist uh, as uh, being a part of the nature of a person or something. I agree. Okay. Oh, beautiful. All right. Um, there's, there's also the problem uh, for atheists and skeptics. Uh, for, for the sake of a moment, let's pretend these abstract principles do somehow just exist in a platonic realm. Well, there's also the principle of injustice or the principle of lying and the, these exist in this abstract realm too. So why there's the problem of why ought I to align myself to certain moral principles and not not others? Um, what what is uh, what is it that forces me to to align in this way? Like with the God answer, I can say I can provide the virtue ethics or the teleos answer, right? Because certain moral principles are are good for us based on how God designed us to be and to live a good life. Um, and then the, the final thing to defeat atheistic moral Platonism is the design argument in the fact that, well, how, why is it that we are, in fact, seem to be aligned towards these? Uh, my moral conscience is aligned towards the good values. 
um, and not against the bad? Why, why isn't it a mixture? Like, why don't we value lying and not value rape? Uh, we value, I don't know, mur- murdering every Tuesday, but not every Wednesday. Like, there's, um, it, it seems we're aligned toward the, the quote-unquote moral point of view. And that suggests there was a, an intelligent designer who designed our moral consciences to be in a, a tune with those uh, those values, so to speak. So those would be the three arguments I would give to favor the theistic or or person as the cause for these. Morals. Okay, I'm sorry. Okay, well, so right, so that's a uh, sort of a hit towards grounding uh, it in God, and and you also would say that. Um, uh, this morality is objective, right? For and sure. Yeah. If, it's obje- if it's objective, in what sense is it, is it objective? Well, it's, a, it's an objective fact. It's, it's an objective part of God. God's nature is uh, these moral, it consists of these moral, following these moral principles, and he, he also issues forth the moral demand, duties in the form of commands that don't apply to him, but they these duties are derived from and are consistent with the overall moral principles that are make up God's morally perfect nature. Um, okay, so there it sounded like the is-ought issue was coming out. Uh, when you say it is a fact that God has this certain type of nature, um, how, I'm gonna, I would ask immediately, of course, well, how do I go from it is the fact that God has any particular nature you want to name, loving or wise or otherwise, to the ought that you derive from that. There's still that gap. Now, you can, it sounded like, like as many theists tend to do, is that you are, you or many theists anyways, plug into the nature of God, that God is the good, his nature is a good, which which just to me just completely question begs it just sort of shuts oh yeah it's, it's the good so so uh so therefore we ought to do it but that's sort of just question begging is why we should accept god's nature whatever it happens to be as being the good now you actually uh mentioned that you think certain good properties are logically necessary and that uh seems to be um going towards trying to answer that question, but that will also, I think, bring in a euthyphro-type dilemma that you'd have to deal with, where um, God must be um, a certain way in order to be good, which seems to suggest a standard that God must measure up to. It's so, referring so- uh, it up to yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so yeah. I, with regards to the the first option. So yeah. God, God's nature defines the good. It, it doesn't uh, elicit a euthyphro dilemma. Like I heard one philosopher, an atheist philosopher, going on about this, and he says, "Oh well, really, theists are just kicking down the can because, okay, God, God's nature, um, God's nature is." Uh, necessarily good but you can still ask well is it good because god creates it good or you know because or the other form because there's this outside standard that's that's missing the point it it's saying god's nature defines the good it is numerically identical to the good well not you know know, as a subset of god he's not just the good but um and and that 
ends the regress. That that ends the answer, just as if, if you t adopt an atheistic moral Platonism. I could answer, well, what makes the good the good? It's just a nonsense question. It, it just, the good defines the good. Yes, but, but you're defining it in exactly the trivial way that I mentioned earlier, G. Moore would object to. Uh, um, is it G? I think it's G. Moore. Um, uh, you're, you're defining the good in a trivial way that's susceptible to anybody defining the good that way. So if I define uh, the good as being Vol's nature, uh, it, it, the, the buck stops there, you know? Um, so in other words, this is where reason comes in. I would, you're asking, you were you're making a proposal and I'm going to ask, what are the reasons for me to accept the proposal? If you're defining God's nature as the good, what reason do I have to accept it? You're going to have to make an argument for why I ought to accept that. It just can't sit as being defined as the good because um, because then that becomes too trivial and anybody can do that and it results in contradictions all over the place. So, so this is where I would say, no, you're wrong. I, I could, but no, I, I don't. In the context of answering or providing a defeater for the Euthyphro dilemma, th this is where the atheist is making a claim and saying there are only two options. I only have to say, no, there, what about this? There, here's a third option. You, Mr. Atheist, have to prove that there isn't that third option and that there are only these two problematic horns to, to take. So, so in that context, I, I don't. I just did that, though. I just did exactly what you're asking. Um, so the, the two horns of the euthyphro that are um, problematic for the theist is that um, either, uh, either, either it makes morality arbitrary. Um, oh, sorry, I'm just uh, I'm drawing a blank on the euthyphro for a second. Either uh, something is good because God commands it or uh, God commands it because it is good. So the problem is if, uh, if, if something is good, if God commands something because it's good, that means there are uh, moral reasons God has for commanding it. That means that the moral reasons are uh, external to God and theists don't want that. But if something is good because God commands it, that seems to make uh, morality arbitrary. You're saying that you have found a third way, and between that, it's uh, based on God's nature. Na uh, God's nature is the good, but um, but you need it. Just moves the uh, uh, kicks the can down. It does to the question of why ought uh, why is God's nature the good? Why should it, I accept that proposition? Because unless you have an answer to that, then you have m you have left it open as being trivial in the same way as I can. Uh, solve morality is saying uh, the good is that uh, derives from me, Vol. So you have left it on an arbitrary horn uh, in so far you haven't justified it. Yeah, no. So it's, you're, it's, you're not you're not allowing us to decide between good being based based on God's nature, as you claim, and good being based on my nature or Donald Trump's nature. Well, so so I did. So it's but arbitrary. In the first place, that, that could be a fourth horn. It would be on the atheist in the context of claiming the euthyphro dilemma to prove that your nature wouldn't be an adequate ground, whereas God's would, yep, right? Yep, exactly. So you need to prove that God's nature oh, no. grounds morality. Uh, okay, so so no, I, I just disagree. It's it's If I'm the one claiming the euthyphro dilemma, and you, you are not, and you go to me, 
Well, uh, those two those two horns aren't necessarily the case. There's four, there's potentially four or a hundred horns because maybe it's grounded in Val, Val's nature or David Johnson's nature or God's nature or Dale's nature. But you've given a whole bunch of horns there. Me as the claimant, and you're just providing these potential defeaters, you don't have to do anything. I think that I need to go in and say, the David Johnson thesis is stupid. He's a human. He, he can't provide an adequate foundation. Same with Val, same with Dale. But God, oh, that's different because he's log he's a logically necessary being. He can uh, provide an adequate, uh, potentially provide a, an adequate base. So then it's, it's again, it's on the atheist to say, well, no, the, God's nature wouldn't do it as well. And as I said, the, the logically necessary, necessary nature does handle that, that there's also why we why we need to follow because that that telios version virtue ethics right where god creates the morals sorry uh where we follow the the god's nature to achieve certain ends or certain consequences that's an aspect to why we follow the moral rules as well in addition to it just being good for goodness sake to be like god um okay so and I was trying to follow your objection to my saying that you've left it arbitrary. And if I understood what you seem to be saying is that the Euthyphro dilemma, which I raised, which I should say that I only raised in service of pointing out the general problem of morality being arbitrary or not. Our, our objective and, and basing it and the general problems of basing it on a god and that euthyphro dilemma does posit those two horns and it sounds like you're saying right no if i start talking about god's nature then i have sort of avoided those two horns um yeah. but we might be able to might be able to say mm, you haven't avoided the, the, the general problem that the youth approach is pointing towards, which is what happens when you base morality on God? Uh, can you defend that it is um, uh, you know, objective uh, or, that it, or that it ends up being arbitrary? What happens when you base it on God? And the same type of concerns, the same species of concerns keep arising. So uh, technically, it doesn't matter if... It's precisely the Euthyphro dilemma that you have solved or not. You still, insofar as you still end up by basing on God's nature with the arbitrariness problem or emptiness problems, you've still got the type of problem that we're trying to get at. And so now it just, and you're right, that if you can make an argument for why we ought to think morality is based on God's nature by, for instance, uh, another argument, uh, an ontological argument about God's necessary nature, well then, yeah, that's that's great. I'd just say, go for it. You know, it's one of those arguments that we should look at. But it, but it sounded like you were saying it's just good enough for you to have defined God's nature as the good, and that would fly, is what I'm saying. Let me, let me turn it, let me ask you a question. So for, forget about God in this equation. Let, let's pretend I take one of the two horns, that there is this external standard, the good, the, these moral principles just exist in some kind of abstract way. What If I turn around and ask you, well, what makes the good good? What, why is the principle of justice good? Uh, is, is the principle 
arbitrarily defining that, hey, I'm a good principal and the injustice saying, hey, I'm a bad one? Uh, or um, is it appealing to some higher authority to say, well, justice is good versus that? And then I can just add infinitum and say, well, what makes that standard kind of thing? So what is it that makes the good good in your view? Yeah, so, so that comes down to a moral theory, right? Um, and uh, um, all different moral theories, of course, will come to different answers, but I will I will start gesturing towards it um, by something that kind of deals with uh, an objection I'm currently having with uh, the direction you're going. So um, keeping in mind the again the universalizing character of of uh, reason, um, let's just take a sidestep from morality to the example of purpose. Um, does purpose exist? Um, what is a purpose? How could it, if it exists, how could it arise? What, is it, what does it take to arise if it exists? Um, and how would God have to have these qualities? That kind of stuff. So uh, in order to, if you think about it, we, once again, we're, we're reasoning from uh, for instance, from experience to start with, uh, and we have we already have an understanding of purpose, how purposes arrive. And I'll put it in the in like Kant's um, hypothetical uh, imperative uh, or or um, prudential sort of uh, uh, imperative, that kind of stuff. In other words, um, uh, you know, what is that? What's what's the purpose of me uh, going to the fridge? to uh, going to the fridge. Well, I've got a purpose because I know there's some uh, beer in there and I'm thirsty and I want to drink the, the milk. That is a cognitive theory, a cognitivist theory. Um, I don't go for infant on cognitivism. I think we're both on that same thing. So I'm kind of speaking as a cognitivist theory. So um, it is my belief that there is um, beer in the fridge and my desire to get beer and my reason uh, reasons that in order to get the beer, I have to uh, go up and, and I'll find it in the fridge. So that explains the purpose of me getting up and going to the fridge. Likewise, what's the purpose of uh, this screwdriver? You can say you, you'll be talking about it, uh, purpose in terms of some goal that an agent has. You know, you're trying to screw to, you want to hold together some new IKEA shell that you got. It takes Phillips screws. Uh, and so your purpose in um, looking for your Phillips screwdriver is that it will fulfill the goal of screwing in the Phillips screws that will hold the, uh, your new cabinet together. So we all have this um, understanding of how purpose arises from the beliefs and desires and goals of agents like ourselves. So now when theists even start reasoning about purpose in the universe and what could give us purpose, what could give the universe purpose, you have to know that they are reasoning in this way. So if there was a, uh, if there was just, at the beginning of the universe, there was just like a rock, right, a non-sentient rock, and it just simply had the quality of causing universes, however that is, supernaturally or whatever, um, no theist or anybody would really accept that as saying, well, the universe had a purpose. It came from the rock. It just sort of came from the rock. It would be the same as if you're attributing it to uh, like a scientific theory. Um, 
for instance, like a quantum fluctuation and quantum foam, and, and it just the universe popped out of that. Theists wouldn't accept that as giving the universe having a purpose, have, um, or that it has given our, us uh, our existence, purpose, all that kind of stuff. So what do they do? What do they look for? They look for a person. They look for an agent, and it's got to be a, an agent who, from our experience of, of how purpose arises, an agent with sort of rationality, sort of de de desires or goals, um, rationality and ability to action to act on uh, his reasons, and and who wanted or desired or had the goal of creating the universe, and then um, reasoned that doing this, you know, speaking into existence, or whatever, would create the universe, and that gave the reason for him to create the universe, and therefore the reason that uh, there was a purpose that uh, for which the universe arose. It arose from the combination of uh, desires and beliefs and rationality of a person. But the thing to note about that is that the very attributes that uh, a, a god has to have in order to have a purpose at all, in order to give anything purpose, are the attributes that we ourselves already have. We are already beings who have desires and goals and who can reason about which actions are more likely to achieve those goals or, or desires. And, and, and reason being universalizable means that you can't special plead. You can't say, ah, oh, well, it takes this type of agent uh, for purpose and reason to arise who created the universe, but then our reasons and purposes they don't really count as much. They're 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 uh, wholly different. His are, object, are are objective. Ours either just wouldn't even exist if he didn't exist, or ours just aren't objective. That's just special pleading. So I think this is a, essentially to me that the, the the fatal problem with any attempt I've ever seen to found morality on God is morality is going to have the same things to make sense of morality. Uh, of sort of what people ought to do or not, you're going to have to posit, first of all, beings that have essentially character characteristics we have. Um, and you're going to have to posit a God who has personal characteristics, characteristics that we already have in order to even make sense of founding it on God. That means that God isn't necessary uh, isn't the necessary ground morality. He's not necessary for morality. Okay. Um, yeah, so I, so I would respond two ways. So the, the first thing is, uh, th this isn't going to address your necessary point, but the first thing is I would say contingently there's a difference with God, so we're not special pleading, given um, ignoring his attribute of, of necessity for the moment. Uh, he's He's got moral moral perfection. He's he uh, he's omniscient. He's uh, omnipotent, and these sorts of things. So, in a way, we can use appeal to him as a moral authority. He would know better about the ends that or the purposes that we want to achieve better than ourselves as rationally. I, uh, sorry, I agree. Yeah. So so that would be a reason to privilege. Well, why am I going to listen to God as opposed to me, even though I have uh, the same ingredients as him, well, he has them to a, a, a better degree that makes him more of an authority. And then the second aspect is, is the fact, well, God is a, 
logically necessary being. And if I can prove that that moral trees, as I believe, are in fact logically necessary, they would require necess a necessary being or beings to, to ground them in. They couldn't be grounded in contingent beings like us. So that would be how I would get to God from, from those objections. Yeah, well, no, I so I agree that if there if there is a God who consists of moral perfections, then um, it makes sense for us to listen to that God's moral recommendations. Um, now, uh, the, the two things about that is number one, it's an epistemic problem uh, that since we're not omniscient, we're all all of our evaluations. Are always going to be provisional, uh, and and so uh, we could be wrong that any particular being is God. You know, what I mean. So there's that, but there's also the problem of uh, that I think you're going to get to, which is when we talk about God possessing all uh, like say composable virtues, um, it's still the, the question still is: Are they virtues because God possesses them? Or is God virtuous because uh, because those virtues are virtuous? And so, if they are virtuous and God must have them because they're virtuous, uh, then you still kind of get this uh, independence from God. Gotcha. Yeah. So it's a, a, again, Euthyphro dilemma type type thing with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, and and now when you if you want to uh, sort of make a stab at the like ontological argument or your argument about uh, certain moral properties, I guess it was being um, logically necessary. Do you want to try putting that together? Um, so. So, yeah. Like, how would we establish that moral uh, truths are logically necessary? Well, I gave in my opening presentation, I did give reasons to think that they are that moral absolutes or moral um, morals are objective and, and these hinted necessary. I'm just trying to. Was this the one based on intuitions? Partially? In that's, that's one of them. Yeah. Um, where is it? Okay, I can't find it. Oh, three strategies. Okay, so. Uh, so, so yeah. The, for, first of all, yeah, that is my primary way. Is I I know that moral truth, these moral truths, certain moral principles, and that are um, logically necessary through in this properly basic way. And it, it this is something that's really strong for me. Um, uh, that doesn't mean I have everything figured out, right? I, I sometimes I uh, on the question of well, what exactly is entailed? You know, what what qualifications are? And I I've kind of admitted. Well, on the principle of truth, is there a qualification or not? And, and divine revelation has played a role in, in that. So I don't have all the details ironed out, but I do have it ironed out um, that there are these moral principles in general, regardless of the, the qualifications, and they are logically necessary in this properly basic way. And, and for nothing you you will be able to say will convert me out of that short of giving me proof 100% knowledge that um, that they're not logically necessary in this way in, in which case logical law of non-contradiction is is broken and I don't I don't know my I don't know how to live life but um, 
uh, the the other thing is is appeal to object you know to a outside worldview. Uh, it can it possibly through like an ontological argument or something like that. We we can prove that in the same way as proving well if God exists, the you know morals will objective morals will exist. You could make a similar type thing and say logically necessary morals could exist. Um, falsifying relativism won't won't get that'll just get you objectivism. But you could you could to try and help with the problem based beliefs, we could reflect on what does it mean for something to be, uh, what what do we mean by moral truths? What are their nature? And as we said, well, they're universal, universalizable. Um, and how, do, how does that operate in modal logic then? Do, do these principles apply not just in our actual world, but across possible worlds? And, and you could say, well, that, that kind of hints that they're, logically necessary at the very least they exist in in multiple possible worlds and that sort of thing and um yeah so that that's how i would get the logically necessary bit if, if it's not in a properly based way I'd probably try to come up with some way well based on the nature of what we know about morality uh and its application modally across possible worlds this could possibly somehow get us to say that's proof that they're logically necessary um, but yeah, in my preparation, I was mostly just focusing on focusing on objective versus subjective. So I, I haven't prepared a, okay. an argument there, but yeah. That's fine. Then I'm, then I'm not going to uh, push too hard on that. I didn't really hear, um, like, because I'm always going to be looking for a reason to accept your conclu- uh, your your premise, your premises or uh, propositions. Um, and I didn't really hear the argument in there for why uh, I should think of any particular um, moral rule as uh, as logically necessary. It sounded like you were gesturing towards a uh, intuition or probably basic belief um, justification, which, as you know, I don't uh, really accept. And I'm... Uh, uh so but I, I don't think we'll go down that rabbit hole at the moment i'm still can you so, sorry to interrupt but can can you using your modal evaluating faculties uh conceive of a possible world where there's an exception so not not an exemption but there's an actual exception and, and remember you agreed at the beginning of the show that the morals are universalizable which, which means they're exceptionless that the principles can't just be done away with so so that would hint that to you there, there is no logically possible world where uh an exception to the principles apply there, there may be exemptions right the, so like lying to save a life that's that's an exemption but the principle still holds it's still true in that that world oh, oh no no i agree with that uh, i i agree with that but it, it's it's a conditional it's that if we're talking about an established moral rule uh, insofar as it's um, going to be uh, derived from reason to a significant effect, everything that you said follows. But the whole point is is actually accepting any particular moral rule as established in that way. And and uh, uh, so I'm not ready to do that. I can I can uh, uh, I, I'm ready to be uh, wrong or be shown wrong, I guess, uh, about uh, any particular. Uh, moral rule and so i don't think you've established um 
establish them as being objectively true. I mean, like, I might agree with you on certain moral rules, but my agreeing uh, doesn't make, doesn't establish them on my account uh, of, as being objectively true. I would want a richer argument before accepting that. So, yeah, once, once you've established it, yeah, uh, I, there's going to be no logical exceptions in the alternative uh, worlds. Um, but uh, yeah, that, that's what I was trying to get at. All right, cool. So, so that's that's good, and that's progress. So, on condition that I can establish just one moral principle, and you'd be like, "Yep, that that's an objective fact uh, or, or moral rule," then I can get you to say, "Well, therefore, they're logically necessary through that that modal argument." It's just a matter of establishing to you that there is, in fact, one moral principle or, or rule that applies and yeah mo most of the time you know like william and craig all, all they'll do is appeal to properly basic beliefs or, or your moral intuitions and say well don't you think that there is this principle of justice or, or principle of truth um uh or or i could falsify moral relativism that again if my goal is two steps to get you to believe that in moral objectivism with these moral rules uh once i get you to that then i can I can, I've already accomplished step two of getting you to say, well, they're logically necessary then. So it's, yeah, it's just a matter of yeah, what's it's, it's a matter of providing the argument. But I, as I say, if I was, for, for the instance of um, the problem I, ha I have with arguments that keep trying to base it on God's nature is I go back to the example of, um, of purpose. Um, you know, if you go back to the, for the for the idea of trying to say the universe has purpose if it came from a magic rock, you can add on more qualities as long as you keep it a non-personal, non-sentient entity like a rock. You can start adding on qualities like, okay, this rock is eternal. Uh, this, uh, or, uh, but that doesn't seem to give us purpose. Or this rock is all-powerful uh, in that. Almost anything can, or anything can arise. Anything logically possible can arise from it, uh, supernaturally. That too doesn't seem to give us purpose. It still doesn't have. These are just incidental to what has to exist ontologically in order for purpose to exist. Uh, and that's what I get when um, people try and base purpose and/or morality on God. Um, it seems to me that God just has to have essentially the personal qualities that we do, um, which points towards promise that if we're going to find any universal principles, we'll find it in our own nature. Um, and then all the other stuff larded onto God about him being um, him being uh, all powerful or all knowing or all these other kind of things. They're just they're just incidental. They don't uh, they don't do anything more uh, to the to the whole project. Uh, and then, of course, you know, you can bring it back to trying to argue for God's necessary morality. But then, as I say, I just think youth prototype problems keep arising when you when you do that. Like, uh, you know, is, is God uh, the greatest uh, the being uh, of the of the greatest possible good qualities? Uh, because good qualities exist and God is the greatest example of those qualities. Um in, in that case, once again, if we even know what we're talking about, then we already can apprehend those qualities, whether God exists or not. But if are those qualities good because God's nature happens to be those qualities? Well, then we're on the 
arbitrary horn, and we're also into the epistemic problem, where you can say, well, if if it's based on God's nature, how do we know what is right and uh, uh, right and wrong? Um, if it would have to be from God revealing it to us, you might say God has revealed it to us even in our hearts, like and stuff like that. But how do you know, for instance, uh, the qualities that God has aren't that of being a deceiver or a sadist or all that kind of stuff? Um, the only way you can really say that uh, object to that is to seems to me to have an outside standard that God has to measure up to in order to be this good being. He has to be a truth teller. He has to be this or that, which once again posits this outside standard, which insofar as we can even apprehend of what you're talking about, we're talking about good, then it's something we as rational beings can already apprehend. And uh, so long as we exist uh, to apprehend those reasons, uh, God doesn't need to exist. And it's it just there's no reason to posit that it is uh, ontologically established on God's nature. Okay, so yeah, so I'm, I'm just going to focus on one thing that you you said. So um, this and this is part of why theists, uh, a lot of theists, even classically speaking, adopt some kind of combination. So for of virtue ethics and deontology. So the, what would you make if, if you're I, I know you're not a virtue ethicist necessarily, but you are talking about this purpose and that's all that's needed. We, we don't necessarily need these moral rules. So if I wanted to come up with an argument to try and get you to say, well, there, there is a need for more rules. There must be a, at least one or more rules. And the main argument against just a pure virtue ethicist type view, as well as utilitarianism of any sort, um, is that it, it's it's inadequate or it's impractical to provide moral guidance. Um, so uh, where's that? Uh, okay, I can't find the quote. I had a, I had a quote. I was going to sound smart, but it's it's gone now. But um, um, th this is one of the main objections against just a pure virtue ethicist without any deontological contribution at all or utilitarian. Yes. It's practical. It's impractical for solving moral dilemmas or specific morals and that sort of thing. You, you need to have all of these long-range consequences worked out and understand what's what's in place. It's the moral rules that give us the content of okay, here here as a virtue ethicist, here are the rules by which I form the right character. As a utilitarian, here are the rules that uh, provide me the um, the guidance to get those long-range beneficial consequences. Without it, you're just sort of blind. Um, is what yeah. Quote. Yeah. So that, how would you? Does, makes, go ahead. No, I was just saying that makes sense to me. Um, uh, yeah, that that makes sense to me. It's sort of like I'm kind of reminds me of how um, you know when 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 uh, people who liked uh, Kant's theory or some form of deontology and uh, for instance seemed to account for um, you know not using other people as ends etc there seems to be a sense of uh, justice built right into that that is missing from um, bare utilitarian theories in which uh, even innocent people in principle could be used um, to some other end some other consequentialist end so that doesn't feel good so you go to deontology and that's got some uh, seems like natural rules built in for not using other people's ends, which tends to invoke justice and other things that sort of feel good. And then, uh, but then that, and then that starts to 
seem to clash once you get to the whole um, hiding a Jewish person from the Nazis type scenarios, which seem problematic and other things, which deontology seems to have a problem with. And so then they sort of moved to uh, uh, like a rule utilitarianism where you are saying there are rules that you always follow and you follow them, uh, but they are, uh, the two differences are that the rule the the rules are selected for their utility, for instance, maximizing happiness. Um, and also within the rules, the rules contain um, contain the exceptions necessary to get them out of the problems that the just the regular deontology has. So, like you know, a, a rule uh, utilitarianism may have a rule like uh, in any situation. Uh, a, treat as mere means as few people as possible, and B, treat as ends as many people as is consistent with A. Um, so you've got exceptions. It's a rule that you will always follow, uh, but there are exceptions built into the rule uh, uh, where you can, you know, you can save the Jewish person, you know, that kind of stuff. Gotcha. All right. Well, I'm, I have a sneaky suspicion that uh, we should probably wrap, start wrapping up at, at this point. Um, also, we, so uh, I'm just, I'm just mind reading, you know, David Johnson on his end. I, I don't know. I'm just like that. But uh, <laughs> no, but yeah, I, did, I just wanted to say thank you. There were some. See, this is such a fascinating subject. There's so much there. I, I had a lot questions we didn't even have time to, to get into so it's yeah i, I want to say thank you this was a, a great conversation to both val and, and david for inviting me on and yeah hopefully sometime in the future we can uh, do do other shows okay yeah yeah it's been great dale and first of all i'm really sorry we didn't get to the theory i was going to uh, to talk about which which basically wraps all these questions and tries to essentially answer them and which would have been fun to have you uh uh, uh, poke holes in. So I'm sorry. I think it ended up me sort of pushing on your theories more than you on mine. So sorry we didn't get there. Probably as much as my fault as anything. So I I also am sorry for nothing. Uh, this has been an excellent uh, discussion, and the only thing that would make it better is three more hours. Uh, but that's not uh, that's not the order of the day. And so, so you know that I got a little note from David. So that's why I wrapped. <laughs> wrapped it up. No, no problem. No problem. <laughs> um, I, I, I had a feeling that if if the voice from above <clears throat> did not step in, this conversation would never end. And it, it is my goal. It, it is my goal as a platform owner that this conversation never end. Uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to take it to the people. And uh, I'm sure that you and um, you two will continue this discussion online hopefully the two of you will make yourself available for uh shows in season three of uh, skeptics and seekers um so that would be a lot of fun I, I think i think people have been waiting for this discussion for a while at at this level and um so i i believe that we have delivered the first dose um of that Next week, we are going to be, um, I say next week, I'm sorry, it, within the next couple of days, uh, it will be myself and uh, David Russell. Uh, he's a voice that you've heard on uh, the channel quite a bit. And we're going to be 
picking up uh, where these two left off. Um, our conversation will be slightly lower brow uh, because we don't have brows that go up that high. <laughs> but um, but I think it'll still be uh, an interesting discussion um, rooted largely uh, in the in the philosophy of how we know what the right thing to do is in any given uh, situation. And so I, I can't wait to hear uh, David's take as I don't actually know what it is. Um, and uh, in the meantime, um, just watch every few days for shows coming out. They'll accelerate. Uh, the pace will accelerate as we hit the weekend uh, and uh, continue to comment um, in the appropriate comment spots. And so with that, all said and done, I think that we are all said and done. Uh, thank you to gentlemen, and uh, we'll see the audience in the comments. All right. Have, have a great week. Uh, yeah, and great talking to you there, Val. I hope to do it again soon. Likewise. I really enjoyed it, Dale. Thanks very much for the opportunity to uh, talk with you and with David. So lots of fun. Awesome.